This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU, we talk crimes, we have guests, and we're thrilled to be here week after week with you. How are you, Kara? I heard you have something to report on from the neighborhood, (laughs) Neighborhood Watch. Well, I'm good. I'm good. Let me, I'll just tell everybody. So my family, my entire family is recovering from COVID. We, by the time this episode comes out, we will be free and clear. We'll be back in the world and it had and been- it, I don't know if you know how stressed I was. Kara and I were supposed to meet at noon. And you probably know if you're a constant listener, if you're new. Kara sends a Google Calendar invite <laughs> before we're even off the phone talking about us meeting. So, <laughs> you know, time's going by. There's no answer, no answer. I, pu- I grab my keys and I'm running out the door. I'm imagining your whole family stabbed to death on the floor. <laughs> and... Then I got a report that you were sleeping. But Yes, sorry. I had fallen asleep and I had forgotten but that's, about art. <laughs> no, but then Lauren was like, I think she has COVID. And I was like, no, that makes more sense. But to me, I'm like, she's murdered. <laughs> yeah, so my whole family's been recovering from very mild cases of COVID. Thankfully, like everybody's okay. No big deal. But I was recently walking with the kids in the neighborhood just to get some fresh air. I was staying away from people. Both my daughter and I were masked. My son can't be masked, but he's also like in a car seat, like blocked from everyone. So like, I didn't think I was being a menace to society, but I was in my neighborhood, like on side streets, not the major street. I cross over the street. I see this guy jog by really fast, an athlete. Then suddenly my daughter's like, ow, my finger. Like she banged it on the air, you know, and was like, my (laughs) finger, my finger. And so I'm talking to her and this guy must have heard my voice because he comes running back and he goes, Kara. And I'm like searching his face. Like, do I know you? And he's like, I'm listening to your podcast right now. Tap class. And I was like, yeah. But in my mind, I was, it was very flattering that this guy was like, I'm a fan, big fan of the podcast. I wanted to talk to him, but I was also like, I have COVID. Like, don't come near me. But I didn't want to like be like, stop, I'm flammable, you know? So I just was very awkward. And in case he's listening, I just wanted to say it was nice to meet you and you were really nice. And I'm sorry if I seemed weird. It was just, I didn't want you to be like, oh, is this Rosie? And like come into our bubble of germs. I know. I was like, Kara, you better have been nice. But also I was like, how did he recognize me? I was in sunglasses and a full N90, KN95. And I was like, how does this man recognize me? But I guess, you know, my voice talking to Rosie, telling her to cut the shit. <laughs> I recently uh, saw some a friend at a party and I took off my sunglasses to say hello. And he was like, 
you think I wouldn't have recognized you with the sunglasses on. <laughs> but I don't know. I didn't think you would. Um, but you have your taste. You're still eating. You're still yeah. making quesadillas. <laughs> I'm still making quesadillas, baby. Yeah, like, we're fine. It's just like, it's honestly... It's very difficult with the two kids, but it's less difficult than I thought it would be. Like, we're, I'm on day, like, nine of being in the house with them right now, and it's I, we're okay. Like, it's not ideal, but it's like, I am letting my daughter watch an incredible amount of television. But Because well, it's because you're a bad mother. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I don't know what else to do, you know? Like, what, I mean, truly, like, we play, we go on a little walk. We try to go in the backyard, but it's like, it's a full fucking day to fill with children. So I'm sure some people listening know my pain because I'm sure some of you have had COVID with children, but. Anyway. Yeah, I feel like that's part of the gig. If you're a kid and you're sick, you get to watch TV and yeah. drink, like and eat popsicles or drink Gatorade or whatever. But she feels fine. So she's kind of like, what's going on? Like, why can't I go to school? Why can't I see my friends? And why are you just letting me watch TV all day? So hopefully it's not going to be too bad of a transition when she has to go back to school, which will be today, actually. Today will be her first day back at school, the day this episode comes out. Because we're in a time machine. Time that was machine. good. Oh, and your brother is visiting. Yes, my brother is visiting and he's staying at a hotel and we're going to be seeing him because um, we're at the tail end of it. So um, I'll be seeing him a little bit and I'm excited. Yeah, he's a real jet setter. He comes out here a lot. And I would like to mention, I loved, I didn't watch the Super Bowl. I went out to dinner. I'm kind of a cool girl like that, but... <laughs> I loved the halftime show more than I ever could envision. Like, I got chills. I literally was like, wow, watching these men and people. I'm Mary J, but like watching Dre and Snoop together, friends for decades. In L.A., like it was such an it. L.A. show. That was what was really cool about it. Like, the, the Rams came out to Nipsey Hustle. Like, it was just like very L.A., everything about it. And I loved the halftime show. Um, famously, I met 50 Cent when I was a page at NBC and I took him, I was escorting him and all of our name tags said like your first name and the first letter of your last name. So like mine said Kara K, yours would have said Lisa T. He, I'm in the elevator with 50 Cent and he's like, Kara K, you know, that's a palindrome. And I'm like, wow, 50. I never thought of that. And then he started like, he was like making a whole thing about it. He was like, Kara Kay and like making up a little song about it. And I was like, this is wild. But also a girl I went to high school with sold 50 cents, huge mansion in Connecticut that had like 24 rooms and like a stripper pole, like a stripper um, full strip stage, like, you know, a, a huge mansion. So got a couple connects to 50, but um, not to memes. name drop, not to name drop. No, but yes, yeah, so many good memes. I like the memes of him hanging upside down. I th like yeah. waiting until the men finish. I, uh, the set, you know, I also, it's usually pop stars. So it's like bigger, 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 fire, fire, get a lion. Yeah. And it was nice that it was kind of like chill. It was just yeah. about the hits and friendship. And I loved how it was staged. Yeah. Yes. And I loved that Eminem, you know did it and took a knee. Yeah. No, that was awesome. I would, that's very, like all that music is like my college time, like my high school and college time. So it's like very, 
in part, like I was like loving, loving it. It was one of the best I've seen in a long time. I liked Shakira and JLo. But besides that, it's like the Beyonce one from years ago when the power went out, I guess. Like, I don't know. Like, they've been really disappointing to me in the past few years. So this was like a really good one. I think overall people are, the sentiment seems to be overall very positive. Yeah, unless you're like a child or a racist, you had a good time. I know. You know? I kept thinking, I'm not going to look at Twitter. I can't handle if it gets racist on Twitter, but. Uh. Um, and I've been listening to playlists because that genre and time of music, I'm just, I'm excited. I'm excited for what my car rides are going to be sounding like for the next yeah. year or two. Well, that plus Yellow Jackets, that's like a good time period. Yeah, so I've been listening to I Got Five on it. I did see the Jordan Peele trailer. It does look exciting. Yeah, Jared and I watched it this morning and he was like, that looks fucking awesome. Like, he's so excited. Well, because we saw Us together, I yes. believe. And yes. then when I saw Get Out, I was with a giant group too. I was with Allison Leiby and she was very scared. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. She does not do horror movies. No, I... Get Out was an experience because I saw it in LA when his when Jordan Peele's name came up, people clapped. And then when Lil Rel at the end comes out, that was an experience in a movie theater I'll never forget. P just people losing their minds with joy. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. cinematic, baby. I mean, I have to see Jackass. Am I going to wait for you? Am I going yes, alone? I'll go with you. I'm like, okay. I'm literally at day 10, like tomorrow. I'll go with you. Yeah, I want to see Jackass. But another Super Bowl thing. Um... I don't know the details or the names, but a man who won the Super Bowl, his hospital was in the wife. Uh, his hospital was in the wife. His wife, I was drunk. Okay, his wife was in the hospital giving birth. Oh my God, really? So this guy won the Super Bowl and then it's him running in the tunnels to like leave to go to the birth. That's and like- And his baby. That's like so crazy. It's like my husband went Too out- Too much dopamine. Yeah, like my husband went out of town- the weekend before I was supposed to give birth and my doctor was like, it's fine. I bet your baby's not going to come early. And it did it. You know, like those kind of things you think like won't happen. And like that's, that timing is truly wild. Like that's, ooh, that poor lady. Yeah, but that's like such a fun night. Yeah, but if you're her, you're like, oh, my body's being ripped apart and I could be at the Super Bowl celebrating with my husband. He does not even hear. <laughs> Would you rather Super Bowl, would you rather sit really, really close or be in a box? Ooh, I think box. Because I don't Me care too. about the game. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want, you know, I want the good food and like, I want, yeah. Like, I, I also want to be able to like talk and not have anyone get mad at me. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I mean, I think football is so slow. You've got to be able to talk during it. It's not like it's sure. It's not like it's tennis. I would never talk at a tennis match. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's like quiet. But like, oh, football takes forever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, what do you think about the Olympics with Shikari and then the Russian? Do you mean the difference? Like how the Russian's allowed to play? Yeah. Or skate? Yeah. It's fucked up. But like, also, is that like, who said Shikari wasn't allowed to to, the to Olympics. perform the Olympic Committee. Yeah, they banned her. They were like, bye, bitch. And then this girl was allowed. And apparently yeah. if she medals. What sucks is that if she medals, apparently there's not even allowed to be a medal ceremony. So like if you medal, you're even taking away that ceremony from two other athletes that worked their whole lives for this. Yeah, for what? Like what What kind of hold does Russia have on the Olympics? And she's 15. She'll be at another Olympics. She'll probably be at another two. Like... <laughs> I know for sure. I just, I like a winter Olympics like I never thought. It makes me actually want to maybe, no, no. 
Actually, ice skate. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say snowboard, but I love that we've seen um, little ginger boy his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And he's dating Nina Dobrev now. Isn't that cute? It is cute. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know her. I don't catch- care about yeah. her, but they seem really <laughs> yeah. in love. That's yes. all I'm saying. And and I and I judge that by my close relationship with them via Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I um sorry, I will be name dropping in this introduction as well. But <laughs> one time I was in an elevator and I turned to a guy and I went, Hey, you look like that Olympian. And he goes, I am. And I went, Congrats, dude. And it was Apollo Ono, speed skater. So that was <laughs> Thrilling for me. <laughs> that was like when I went up to that guy, Michael Badalucho or whatever, and was like, you look like that guy from The Practice. And he's like, I am that guy. <laughs> I am. Oh, and we didn't even mention Mary J. Blige because we were so into the California of it all. But I told someone, I was like, I couldn't stop staring at her thighs. And he goes, yeah, the world was looking at her thighs. <laughs> like, you're not alone. I that think w- that was the design the point. <laughs> of her outfit was to draw your eyes to the thighs. <laughs> yeah. Draw your eyes to the thighs. That's a rule of cultureless culture, yeah. he says. We need to make our own rules of culture. Yes. What do we do? What do we say? The prize are in the eyes. What did you say? Your eyes are drawn to the thighs. Your eyes are drawn to the thighs. I like that. I like that so much. I said something today on a FaceTime with a friend that they really, really liked. Um, I said something like, I'm obsessed with that person. And I was like, I don't have another choice. And then they said, why? And I go, well, because I would have been jealous. So might as well just be a fan. (laughs) That's so true. Choose fandom. Choose fandom. I was like, if I wasn't obsessed with her, I would be jealous. So yeah. Might as well give her all my money. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No other way. (laughs) (laughs) No other way. (laughs) All right. Listen, Um, we have huge news. All right, guys. It's the moment that many of you have been waiting for. (laughs) If you live on only one part of the country. But no. (laughs) We are very excited to announce... You say it, Lisa right? always or, or tries say to do a drum roll, but it's always snapping. You, oh, whenever <laughs> yeah. you try to do a drum roll, it's snapping. Um, guys, we're going on tour. We're so we're excited. Going. Yes. We're so excited. Um, if you go to that'smessedup.live.com, that will take you to a page with all the ticket links. We're going to be doing shows in Los Angeles, Tempe, Arizona, Seattle, Portland. San Diego and Denver um, and Irvine, Southern California. So we're going to be a little bit all over the West, the Pacific Northwest. We're excited. Um, And this is just, you know, our first tour, hopefully, and hopefully we'll be out East soon. And so come and buy tickets and come see us. And we're going to have an awesome show for you guys live. Yeah, we're excited. If you're, we don't know what we're doing yet, but we'll figure it out by then. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's really thrilling. And if you have, I mean, don't be annoying about it, but if you have some suggestions or hardcore requests of what you'd like to see from us, as long as it's not taking off our clothes, send us a message. <laughs> send us a message. Because I'm, yeah, but I'm I'm thrilled. We got to get some outfits going. If Even if you have people that don't listen to the pod, maybe try to bring them. Like, we really want to sell tickets so that we can come to more cities, basically. So support us and come see us live. And we want to meet you guys. Because Lisa's gotten to meet a lot of you out on her stand-up stuff. I'm not touring a touring stand-up as hardcore as she is. So I'm excited to meet a lot of you guys. Yeah, we're, we're going to do the meet and greets after. We will talk to you guys. So we have nothing to, you know, we'll be there. So. <laughs> 
We'll take some shots. What else do we have to do in Tempe? And we're going to be... <laughs> but yeah, um, and you'll see all the artwork and all the stuff. And it's like, it's fucking cool. We're doing it. We're a, a hip podcast that's out on the road, baby. Yeah. So there's more details on our socials and at thatsmessedoplive.com. All right, should we start today's episode? It's a good one. Yeah. All right. Hello. Um, okay, we've already said hello. My bad. Okay. All right. So <laughs> we're going to get started. I don't know. Is scourge? Scourge? Scourge. 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 What does that mean? Scourge, I think, technically means to burn. Like, mm. it's like to burn something. But... um. Okay, that makes like, sense. That makes sense. But something that's a scourge is like something that's uh like a blight, like a horrible thing, uh, you know? I don't know. Well, you shouldn't have used the word blight. That definitely put us two steps back. <laughs> I was I was on track though. I was. Um season 2, so that's exciting. Episode 21, it is the season finale, so you know it's going to be uh jam-packed. Also, I read this little tidbit online that this is the final episode before 9-11 because like this what this aired in May. So this is the last episode where you see the Twin Towers in the credits. Just a little tidbit. That is a very good tidbit. Yeah, Sex in the City had to change. A lot of things definitely had Wait, to change. Wait, did I ever tell you that like literally a week before 9-11, Home Depot had this sticky wallpaper and my friends and I put up a full skyline in our college living room of New York City. And then a week later was 9-11. So did so you our, guys take it down? We didn't take it down. The whole year we were like, our twin towers are still standing. And people would come into our room and be like, whoa. Like everybody was like, this is a lot. <laughs> like, did anyone draw a plane and like pretend no, that was no, funny? No, no, no. We didn't do anything it disrespectful. Fresh. It was too fresh. Yeah, yeah. I have done something disrespectful before. Um, when our friends, the Joyce's, were leaving Chicago, um, we did a big going away party. And I don't remember what, but there was a 9-11 themed poster. <laughs> but I can't. There were people fall. It wasn't good. We'll ask. We'll ask. Um, okay. It was not in good taste and it was in marker. I think they threw that one out. I don't think they kept that one for <laughs> memories. Um. So, you know, it opens on an, I at first thought wealthy and then I changed my mind, but an educated couple I'm wearing tan and beige trench coats, crossing a sexy New York street. She's like, ugh, this play is fucking shitty. I'm done. I'm done with these plays. And he goes, it was nominated for a Tony. And she goes, yeah, and that's why I didn't win. Now I know why. And um, <laughs> love that. You could tell they've maybe been married for a while. So he goes, well, what about your shitty cooking shows? And she says, well, they don't cost $75 a ticket. So that's why I was like, oh, they're not rich. But maybe a Columbia professor. You know, mm -hmm. like in the upper middle class. Yeah. Uh, we don't even, we never see these people again. I don't know why I'm analyzing them. So <laughs> fuck these people. Um, so then this guy in a hood bumps into the man, knocking him off his feet for a moment. He runs into a cab. He's a mess. He's limping. He's out of control. He disappears. The wife goes, oh no, look at your coat. Husband is covered in blood. Covered in blood. And he's holding a playbill, which, what a great props department. Yeah. What a great props department. Um, so that was very exciting. Back to the blood. What smells? Oh, my God. And then they see there's a fire scourged um, near the <laughs> trash. So they go to investigate. Um, 
And now it's time for all the detectives to show up. So what is the fire? What's going on? Stabler's in a baseball hat. Benson's talking to the trench coat duo, and they got to work with a sketch artist. So then Benson and Stabler are working and saying the fire was a sex worker who got burnt. Um, So did she pick up the wrong John? What's going on? And then we get a fire department chief that is so old. He should have retired maybe 45 years ago. Like, I don't even know if he can handle the coat. It looks so heavy on him. There's no way this man is still working. But he's the chief. So he says um, the bad guy put garbage on her and set that on fire. So that sucks. He said if the firehouse wasn't right around the corner that she would have like fully burnt to death. But because they were so close, they were able to preserve the body. So bad news, Melinda Warner, tons of bad news. She's crouched over the body. We get genitals are mutilated, fluid present, 50% of her body burns. And then her throat is slit from like ear to ear. And then she's filleted from torso to genitals. And then they go butchered and barbecued. And it's like, did we have to? You know, did we have to? They make that that joke all the time. They're always like, first he got toasted, then he got roasted. Like they're always making little jokes when when it's the perp, when it's the guy, not when (laughs) it's a sex worker covered in garbage. No, in another episode, there was a guy running around, member covered, burning, and they were like, first he got to, and his alcohol level was high, and they were like toasted and then roasted. Like they love, they love a butcher, they love a barbecue pun. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. So now we're back from the credits. The credits happen after Butchered and Barbecue. Just a nice killer bit before we get into it. <laughs> um, so we're back. We're, uh, we're talking to the street vendor that the man bounced into. He was preaching some religious dibber- gibberish and no more information. Um, the sex worker, though, is a regular. Her name is Cassie, and she is known well in the community. Uh, Munch and Finn show up, and, you know, they all gossip and disperse to go do their jobs. So the boys go to the souvenir shop to ask some questions about the man who was in there earlier. And he goes, oh, yeah, he was weird. And he had a beard. Uh, He asked for water, but he sent him to the deli. Uh, But first he picked up a magazine and ripped it open and was yelling. And so the guy beat the shit out of him with a Statue of Liberty, which I love. So he hit him with a Lady Liberty. (laughs) Is that not a metaphor for New York City? I don't know what else. (laughs) (laughs) Because he reached into his coat, so he got scared. So that's where the limping's coming from, getting beaten by the statue. And the detectives take the statue and the, you know, the magazine for evidence. And the guy's like, that's $30. And it's like, bro, write it off. You know what I mean? (laughs) Write it off. Write it off, honey. Um, So we're back in the squad room. We're Stabler, Benson, Cragen. Um, We find more information about Cassie. She's 23. And then the perp was white with a dark coat and under the influence. Finn says maybe PCP. Sadly, no prints, not from the peanut stand, not from souvenirs, no matching prints in the system from anything. Annie, uh, did you ever buy peanuts in the streets of New York? Oh, yeah. I like the little sweet ones. You're a peanut girl. I love the smell, but I've never jumped and did it. I would probably say I did it five times in 11 years. Like, I didn't do it all the time, but I would do it once in a while and be like, you know what? I got three bucks burning a hole in my pocket. I'll buy like 10 peanuts. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I actually didn't do the street vendors as much as I pictured in my fantasy. As yeah. I mean, I became a vegetarian four years into living in New York. So I really didn't do hot dogs very much. Well, I'm a Chicago girl. The hot dogs in New York are trash. Come for right. me. I don't give a shit. It's not pure right. beef. They're skinny. They suck. <laughs> got it. I want a fat <laughs> beef dog. Okay. Mm-hmm. Put that on a shirt. <laughs> I want a fat beef dog. <laughs> Merch. <laughs> no, I would get um, 
shawarma, meats, meat. Yeah, like, yeah. I see myself getting meats. I would get an egg and cheese or a coffee on the way to something sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, so many bodegas. But I've never the peanuts. One time. One time I will. All right. Where are we? I always get distracted with New York goodness and um, snacks. <laughs> always a distraction for me. So Benson and Stabler go check up on the autopsy and Munch and Finn are going to go talk to Cassie's co-workers on the street. So Munch gives one of the girls coffee and they actually brought $17 worth of coffee and donuts from the girls. And he said, if that's not respect, I don't know what is. In 2001, that's a lot of coffee and donuts. Yeah. I brought my parents donuts quickly today and my dad was disappointed I didn't bring a whole dozen. And it's like, you did just have heart surgery. Relax. (sighs) Yeah. I brought you four donuts. That's enough. Okay? That's enough. (laughs) My mom goes, he wanted a box. I go, well, he got a bag. He got a bag. (laughs) So, uh, you know, they give the scoop. They give the scoop on the guy that they saw Cassie go away with. Beard, again, crazy eyes. They talked a moment. The name of the perp is Daniel. And one of them did have a bad feeling. But, you know, she laughed and Cassie said, I could take care of myself. And, yeah, and then... That was that. Now who's going to take care of her little girl? So, which is just sad. And they like never, we never see the little girl. We never find the answer to that. They just like throw in an extra bit of sadness. They're like, oh, she had a kid. Moving on. Well, yeah, because as a society, I feel like we treat a lot of people that work on the street uh, as like so dispensable, disposable, not mattering. But you should matter just for being a person. But it's nice to think like, no, now people will miss her. And she mm-hmm. had value in this planet. And yeah. Off. Why am I fighting with someone that didn't even say anything to me? Okay. Um, <laughs> we're now at Melinda's house, um, a.k.a. the morgue. So 42 stab wounds. Are you fucking Ugh. kidding me? Are you kidding me? Slits, uh, one blood type, double edged, serrated on each side knife, six inches long. This happened in a frenzy, a real fever dream, not planned or methodical in any way. And we leave Melinda's and we're back at the precinct. Cragen says he's got something. The semen found in her was in the sex offender database. So that's good. It's in Staten Island. That's a problem. So (laughs) Stabler is taking coats off a coat pole. Have you ever noticed this coat area in the precinct before? No, I don't think I have. They it's were like all a like coat fidget. hook. Yeah, they, it's not a coat hook, because but like a pole of hooks, like you would have at a school play. Oh, you know, they wheel got them it. out for the parents or something. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I never noticed. I never have noticed them grabbing coats before, so that was just a nice little treat um, for those who did notice. And he did great object work, you know, playing with the hangers. So they're ta- they're going to go figure out this DNA stuff, talk to the guy. The journey shows up. I don't think this is the guy, okay? Am I going to talk about him less? No. Um, so <laughs> a man in a hard hat goes, oh, hey, Norm, you know, the cops are here. Norm, not happy. It's hot. Norm's hot, though. Um, he starts running, um, and they teased that Finn was in a car, so we obviously know that Finn will now trap him. They will arrest him. He screams, I didn't do it. Then why are you running? This is classic, classic. Take a drink. Um, <laughs> but he is confused about the murder charge. He goes, whatever. I picked up a horse. So what? And it's like, it's against your parole, big boy. Like, you can't be doing that shit. Uh, but he's de- he's denying doing any of the slicing and dicing. He said he paid her and left no murder. Um, and then, uh-oh. Another victim was murdered last night. So they have to go back to the streets. The roommate came home and found her. The cop that they meet on the scene of the crime, he said he spent 14 years on the job, and this is the first body that made him puke. 
The perp did a real number on her. So uh, the there's a lot of blood. It doesn't look good. I don't like the way it looks. Uh, dead 12 hours. He slits the throat so they can't scream. Again, you know, we learned that. That's a signature, I guess. Benson's like, what do you think's wrong with this guy? And Stabler goes, yeah, he thinks he's Jack the Ripper. So, you know, I love that. Um, not Jack the Ripper, but, you know, when they mention real crimes. Uh, now we're back at the office and Cabot's mad about something to Cragen. Yada, yada, suspect. Cragen, get us a warrant. Yada, yada. You know, this the classic fight. Tale as old as time. The DAs and the cops just fighting it out. Um, <laughs> who can break the rules or get evidence faster or more. So we see Munch, and he is now filling in with the ID of victim number two. Her name is Teresa Folsom. She's 24, and she's a publicist in the publishing world for books. Um, and he's bringing coffee to the roommate, and she is crying hard. I feel like this is the first time in the history of SVU that a person looks accurately upset at what's happening. She's not, you know putting stickers on a can. She's not rearranging <laughs> shelves. She's not organizing receipts. Like, yeah. Especially young people. I feel like when it's young people, like roommates in their 20s, it's usually like, who's going to pay the other half of my rent? I can't afford this place alone. Or like, like really insensitive shit. I didn't even know her. Check her stuff. She was kind of yeah. yeah. <laughs> this girl's really sad and actually having a human reaction. No, this scene really took me by storm. I like focused on it because I was like, I think this might be the first time a witness <laughs> cries. I don't I or looks upset or holds her head or like likes her friend who's dead and disappeared. So uh well, yeah, she's not like actually I have class to get to. Like I yeah. just <laughs> so I'm really impressed with the acting and the choices made here. Um standout performance crying and she's she's like apologizing for crying and she's fighting with her hair and face like she is really stressed about it. She's giving details that Teresa went home early from a party and uh, Rebecca stayed at her boyfriend's house. So Teresa went home, Rebecca stayed out, then slept at her boyfriend's. Uh, Munch is asking if she was a sex worker and she turns on him. My best friend is dead and I don't have to listen to this. And they're like, girl, no offense, we're just figuring stuff out like we, we we're on the side of the sex workers but they are only are they only asking if she's a sex worker because of how she's dressed because she was dressed to go clubbing right no, i think it's because the first one was Because the first one was a sex worker too okay yeah and maybe the outfit tipped it off but i think it was just like a jack the ripper pattern mm -hmm. okay um, so they're like trying to put pieces together. She said, no, actually, Teresa had a boyfriend in Boston and she was not promiscuous. I would not pick up a guy. Um, and she is squeaky clean. They confirm not even a traffic ticket. But maybe she doesn't have a license, but whatever. Okay. Uh, Benson, <laughs> that's always like such a. What if it was like, whoa, she has like 40 traffic tickets. She deserved to get murdered. This girl Such a good point. does not know how to feed the meter. Oof. <laughs> Such a good point. Benson, though, still thinks it's plausible for this guy in custody to have done two murders that they have. And I don't buy it. Like, I just don't see it. But two murders and enough time to catch the Staten Island ferry on the way home. Um, and Munch comes in with the science to be like, no, 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 no. Blood found at the recent murder scene does not match this guy we have in custody. So Stabler's still like, let's book him on a parole violation and let's get back to work. Or it's like, let the guy go. He just had sex. Like, let's let him go. <laughs> like He paid for it. He was safe. Yeah. Like, you're right. I agree with you. But <laughs> like... 
Finn is like, maybe he's done this before in other places. Is this a foreshadow or a throwaway line? We'll see. But um, they're going to see if there's an MO somewhere else that's happening. BD Wong comes in and starts giving a role. Uh, like, I feel like we're in a play or a book report. You, you know, everyone, the audience, there's all like the whole squad is paying attention. So George's anal- George Huang's analysis is um, this guy comes out at night. He attacks prostitutes or women who he thinks are prostitutes. Uh, Munch brings up the Ripper again. Uh, and Craig goes, shut up and listen to George. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if I made that up or not, but I like it. Um, and he says the guy might suffer from schizophrenia. They ask what's up with the fire. And George is getting devil vibes, hell vibes, like pure vibes, you know? Mm. Um, was he drunk or high or just schizophrenia, mentally ill since childhood or adulthood? Maybe he's been institutionalized in the past. Um, he's not been able to keep a job. He lives alone. Strong religious delusions and voices. Impulsive, disorganized, unpredictable, and will not stop until you stop him. Ooh. So that was a nice rundown from George and Cabot comes in with papers and okay, no, I don't know why I hate her so much, but (laughs) she comes in with the newspaper because I do love her and I love her short haircut here and I'm obsessed, but they are annoying. The DAs annoy me in this show. And maybe well, that's because they job. always run in and they're just like, well, the media has the story now. What are you guys even fucking doing? And it's like they're literally it's body after body. They just found the second body. Like, you know, they're working on it. And if this was any other police department or show, I would go fuck the police. But, you know, our squad's working hard. Like our <laughs> our babies do not like lazy it up. Stabler hasn't seen his children in weeks. OK, like they're fucking working. Um, but, you know, the newspapers. Um, are calling him the Night Ripper, and the community is scared. So now they're still trying to find the cab from up top that, like, he bumped into, and there was, like, a fight situation. Maybe he wasn't a cab. They're looking for this cab. I wasn't sure where this cab fit in, but there's a cab and there's evidence. Um, And this lead's going to go. They found it. They found it. So um, the cab driver, they look at the, the paper, and this is, like, the 1800s that there's not even a computer in sight. Like everyone's <laughs> logging everything in with paper and his reported wages don't match the mileage that he wrote in on. So they have to go talk to him. Um, they visit the driver. It's the apartment of Sikau Obang. And I said that correctly. And they're talking to him on May 2nd. So shout out to my friend, Alex Crawley and my niece. May 2nd is their birthday. So they, <laughs> They ask for information and he's lying and saying he doesn't know. He doesn't know, but he's got to admit it. And basically he lets his cousin drive um, to make extra money to send back home. And he picked up the killer, but they were breaking the rules. So they couldn't like um, say or do anything about it. Um, But his cousin saw the bloody clothes and face and that the man ducked when the cops drove by. So he is in his right, not right frame of mind, but if you're hiding from the cops, you know what you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a clue. And the cousin says he was like very scared of this man, Daniel. Like he was scared. Uh, Medium height, wild eyes, bushy beard. So same description that we've been getting. So he went downtown and he paid with a bloody 20 and didn't wait for change. And they're like, give us the money. He goes, I already spent it. Who's accepting bloody $20 bills? I am not <laughs> sure. Would you take a t- bloody 20? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. But yeah. I guess maybe he washed it off. You can like wash dollar bills. I don't know. Wild. Now we're trying to get evidence from the cab, but it's like how many people have been in and out of this cab? Like, what are we going to mm. find? But they do the luminol thing with the blue light and there is blood. But fuck, 
Jack strikes again. So that's a bummer. So they have to run and they end up at this like pinball machine place, games, stools. It's a fun bar, fun bar. A man is bleeding on a stretcher. So calm. I just like don't understand. Usually they're like being wheeled away and they can barely talk. This guy's bleeding from his gut fully and just upright having like very long conversations with everyone. Details. Details. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He is not phased by being stabbed in the fucking stomach. So he's chatting it up. He's uh, so what he says is he's washing his hands in the bathroom and this is going to get bad. So a kid is at the urinal and this crazy guy comes in running, screaming about machines, controlling people, slits the boy's throat. Um, Oh, my God. So just like that, like he just came in and slit this boy with no thought like that's scary. So this guy is a fucking hero. Tried to grab the knife, attacked this guy. This guy stabbed him in the stomach. The dad came in and ran straight towards the kid, like didn't see what was happening because he was so focused on his child being slit on the face. Like that's even more traumatic, I bet. Um, uh, but since he, since he doesn't pay attention and the guy is like yelling, trying to warn him, but too late. And the guy stabs the daddy, um, and slits his neck as well. So daddy, son, neck slits. Cragen says Huang is on the way and he can do better profiling on the scene. And there's so much blood. It is not good. Yeah. It's a really, ooh. And then this is really sad and this kind of sticks with me always, but like the mom, of the murdered son and husband is like comatose, like truly like is in a trance, very high levels of acting, like tears are welled in the eyes, but not dropping. It's just like a pretty incredible, but she is sad, not in the right right frame of mind. She's like, she keeps talking about, well, I got to take him. We got to pack. We're going back to Oregon. It's like, you're not going to Oregon, honey. You're staying here. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and the kids so sad. He lived two minutes like bleeding out. Oh my God. I don't even think I caught that detail. No. Yeah. Two minutes bleeding. Oh. And it is the same knife. And now we learn not targeting sex workers. So four victims in 24 hours. And it's scary because it's a serial killer. You can't profile because he's acting at random. The city it's is scared. And, um, like, they're all chatting. The reward is up to $100,000. Any tips to get him? There's, like, 50-plus cops. People are coming on their days off. They're going to get overtime. And Cragen says, we will take every single tip seriously. Let's go. Let's solve this crime. So everyone disperses and has assignments except for Stabler, and he's upset. He's like, Daddy Cragen, why don't I get an assignment? This is my case. <laughs> And Cragen goes, I need someone to trust in charge while I'm with the bosses. So I, you know, and now he feels good about himself. He gets a little hall monitor sash. So the mom comes in from fresh crying and she's still confused and is like, hey, we are moving. We have to sell our house. And it's like, I hope you get back to reality or keep living in this delusional state. I mean, either one seems terrible. Which one's worse? Not sure. We'll put up a poll. Would you rather know your family is dead and be sad or live in a in a home? <laughs> yeah, she's in like a fugue state or something. She just seems like she's like, yeah, we got to finish the stuff that we ha-. like. It's really it is really good acting. I'm very yeah. sad for her. Yeah, um, they want her to snap into it, uh, but she collapses. She collapses into Stabler cries and Stabler goes, uh, hey, go with this cup. So he gets rid of her. He's not in the mood for that. Right He's now. like, we'll get you a sandwich or whatever you need. <laughs> yeah, really, like, I hope it's a good one. Uh, Kathy calls of course and Stabler says I just like to hear her you know your voice so that was sweet 
Uh, Munches is, uh, is with Melinda, blah, 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 transfer evidence. We get a 60-40 cotton wool blend found in all the places. So he's been wearing the same thing when he's killed all four victims. So clues, you know, Melinda's uh, rich with clues. Cragen runs to a bunch of the detectives and says, wait, 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 wait. We just got a call from a disturbance in Washington Square Park and civilians are holding a guy they think is the guilty man because um, he was raving about religious shit and they beat the shit out of him. So very Richard Ramirez, the community's taking control and they're bringing mm. this guy in, except it's not the guy at all. Finn goes, you see this guy? Beard and hair, you morons. And like this is... <laughs> a bald, clean-shaven man, and one of the guys is like, he shaved it off! But I just love Finn being funny here. Um, it really made me happy. <laughs> and I love how all of them have Queens and Staten Island vibes, but we're in Washington Square vibe. We're like, <laughs> yeah. what, is, what was it, you know? Um, maybe, well, maybe they're all doing construction in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's like, I don't think the NYU students are a part of the mob, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love Washington Square Park. No, me too. But you're also going to see more than one person ranting about religion loudly in Washington Square Park. You got to yeah. check the you got to check the one the, the sketch. You know, like you can't just yeah. No, you can actually pick one of your favorite pigeon people. There's multiples. <laughs> multiple so pigeon people hanging. Um, a lot of a lot of drums, a lot of plastic bucket drums, a lot of fountains, a lot of people filming man on the streets. It's a really a lot of dominoes, chess skateboards. Ah, uh, it's... I was a planted man on the street in Washington Square Park once. Of course for you like were. A, for like a gum thing, like commercial with this other comedian and I had to pretend like I was just a person he was walking up to. Yeah, I mean, Washington Square Park because it's like pretty but in the middle of stuff but there's not trains nearby so it is like serene. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I do like it there. It feels very... It's just very iconic New York. Yeah, you know, I was listening to Lana Glazer on a podcast, and that's where she met her husband. Oh, really? Yeah, like, he was walking by, and in her head, she was like, who is that hottie? And then she didn't really go talk to him for whatever reason, but they made eye contact, and then he walked back around, and they talked, set up a date, and, you know, now they're married with a child, so. With a little baby. She's so cute. So shout out to meeting love in the park. <laughs> So we're back from Washington Square Park reminiscing and we're back to the murder. Do you guys remember? So they're going to arrest all the people for assault. So that's good. But Munch understands because people are scared. And when people are scared, they do strange things. So now we're back at the precincts. Everyone's tired. It's nighttime. It's 4 a.m., Stabler says. And he's letting people go to sleep, but not at home, but in the crib. So, you know, Finn goes, you don't have to ask me twice. A man after my own heart. So he's going to get a couple <laughs> hours. Because that's my schedule right now. I'm like sleeping. Well, I slept from like 4 to 7 and then from 10 to 11.45 today. That's been my sleeping <laughs> schedule. It's not good. I will die of a heart attack. Anyways, <laughs> knock on wood. But if Lady Gaga can do it, I can do it. That's what I always say. It's like you dream of being successful. Well, guess what successful people don't do? Sleep. They don't sleep. Right. They don't sleep. They got to do radio, honey. <laughs> Oh, I talked to, I did, you know, Michelle Collins radio show. And she was saying she, while she was in London, a man was following her and she couldn't lose him. And she started screaming. And a man from up in an apartment building said, do you need help? And came down and him and his girlfriend walked her all the way home. <gasps> wow. Yeah. 
I didn't know. I mean, I've been following her European adventures very closely. I guess she didn't post about that. That's terrifying. No, we just talked about it. Um, and I don't even know how it came up, but I think people just talk to me about murder and rape now and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any sort of assaults that go on or creeps that they find. But yeah. then they also think we're an encyclopedia. They're like, you know about this case? And it's like, not unless, no, get away from me. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I, knew, I know stuff. Um, Benson, though, of course, doesn't want to sleep. She's a martyr to the cause. She's too pissed to sleep. So she um, she offers help. So they're going through bunches of tips and um, papers, and they're going through it. And there's a little tense moment where Benson's reading them out loud, and Stabler says, you don't have to read them out loud. And she's like, wow, someone's in a mood. And I feel like this is something that could happen to us. Yeah. I don't really like to have people read things out loud to me. I'm like, can you just show it to me? Like, show me the paper or email it to me. Like, I don't want it to be read to. Oh, I thought that. No, you would be reading it out loud. I don't like to be read out loud to, so I'm sorry if I've done that to you. No, oh, because I don't care, but because <laughs> I'm just I'm remembering our mom. Like, you like to, ch- I bet you'd be like, oh, he was found here. Okay, well, he Well, was no, honest. a quick little detail is fine. Reading a sentence or two is fine. When someone's like, okay, here's two paragraphs on it. I don't like that. No, I'm like, can you no. just send it over? I really don't want to be like, it's not story time for me right now. <laughs> no, know? and I have to look while you're at least reading it or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, so he cracks his knuckles and he realizes that he spends more time with her than his own family. But then he says, no offense. And it's like, what's the offense? Yeah. It's just a fact. Like, I I spend a lot of time with you. No offense. Like, that makes no <laughs> yeah, sense Yeah, no offense implies I hate that I spend a lot of time with you. you know? Yeah. So Benson says, yeah, we both need a vacation. And then she finds a tip that's good. Um, The owner of a deli guy, like a deli person, he, a bodega boy, um, (laughs) he says that he got a check with bloody fingerprints on it. So they go to the deli. It's in the safe. Hell fucking yes. The name on the check is Paula Varney. They go to the apartment. Cute apartment. Lots of plants, books, frames, magnets, my kind of my kind of vibe. Uh, there's a fox cookie jar in a basket that caught my eye. Like this woman's crafty. She's good. You notice so many things that never even enter into my eyeballs. It's our job. <laughs> it's our job. We, I, you know, we each notice. I know, but things. I just <laughs> I don't look as hard when I'm not recapping. I will say that. Of course. I, I you know, but you also just are a real detail oriented for decor that I, well, in a way that I'm not. I'm also a cookie jar enthusiast. I do own two oh, cookie yeah. jars. And in Chicago on Lincoln Ave, there used to be a cookie jar store that I would frequent. I've gifted cookie jar. I do like okay. cookie jars. I didn't know that. It's a fun wedding gift. Like if you don't want to do a registry and you want to be cooler and more fun, like they they make cookie. Like I have a Bart Simpson one and a Dalmatian from 101 Dalmatians. So it's like you can get, I got my sister the Flintstones for one of their wedding anniversaries. And it's like oh, the two cute. couples. Uh, it's Wilma and Fred touch holding each other. And yeah, that's I cute. Yeah, yeah, no, that is a cute wedding gift idea. I just, I like that as a gift, but thank you. I do notice wild things. I did notice what woman, the you know, what color the woman was wearing. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> not a word. So wait, can I just point out too that this woman, Janet Varney, is played by Karen Allen, who is like one of my favorite actresses from like the 80s and 90s. Like I love, love, love her. She plays Bill Murray's like love interest in Scrooged. Like she's in so many things. I love her. So she's in Scrooged and Scourge? Scourge and Scrooged. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, I did not recognize her at all, so I'm glad. Oh she's yeah, getting she's a in a movie. Out. She's in a movie about the Challenger explosion, I think. Like she's in a lot of stuff. Like if you look up her IMDb, she's great. See, that's your strength. If you see a word or a thing and you go, 
I looked that name up and it's actually a politician that lived there. So <laughs> I noticed the decor and you noticed the things that it's like, wait, what is that medical condition? And then you yeah, references, I guess I'm more. Yeah. Yeah. You'll go look it up. Um, my favorite is you did send me a photo of your son and underneath you wrote Pika question mark because <laughs> he was eating a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I really liked that. Um <laughs> She says she gave the check to her husband. So I think this is going to be the the big clue. And she does seem worried. Did something happen to him? She says he doesn't live here. And but she has two daughters eating breakfast. They're really cute. She does the classic scurry them off so they get changed so they won't be late for school. And she's about to get real. She saw him day before yesterday and she helped support him. But he started having problems about three years ago. He began losing it. He lost his job. She had to go back to teaching. And they didn't get divorced so he could stay on her insurance. They show her the sketch. And it's him and it's urgent. So she tells him where he is. The priest gave him a small room in the church to live in. And he's a janitor at the church. So he's going to be at the church. Um, And she asks, has he done something? Has he hurt someone? She seems really nervous and they have to go. The judge signed the warrant. Like, so that while Benson and Sabler are walking up the stairs, um, they say that they have a signed warrant and Munch and Finn are on their way to search the room with that warrant. They catch him mopping in the church basketball gym. What? Do <laughs> churches have multi-purpose rooms? Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know there were gyms at churches. Didn't know. Um, and his uh, beard is trimmed. His hands are wrapped up from the knife wounds, I bet, and the all the cutting up he's been doing. When he hears that it's the police, he goes into a religious prayers and shakes. He's scared, cries. Um, he goes, I served God. These people are unclean. I helped the child. Oh, no, he has a knife. He takes the knife out. So the detectives take their gun out, and it's a really Western-style, tense, moving-around scene, trying to keep him calm, but also trying to get him. Stabler ends up jumping on him from behind. Benson kicks the knife in a really cute little kick. I, like, I'm upset with the kick and um, <laughs> they both cuff him and uh, you know he's squirmy 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 so they both have to get on him and he keeps screaming about God oh no fuck there's a mob there's paparazzi he's wearing a bulletproof vest because they know the city hates him so much so Benson sits with him in interrogation and he says that he was following orders from God and sent my messenger who is an angel who is said to cleanse them So an angel messenger said, cleanse these people. And he's like, why didn't you just shoot me? You should have shot me. And Benson goes, I didn't want to hurt you. And he goes, yeah, but he says, you must. You must kill me. Please kill me. Please kill me. I can't take any more pain. And so you do feel for this guy, even though he's this violent killer. And that's, you know, what SVU does, makes us think about lots of things. Um, Benson looks concerned and worried and scared and pity and confusion all at once. She's magic. She's such a good actress. All evidence points to him, and Cabot wants to rush to court. So they, the arraignment happens May 4th. So um, we're, we're in court to meet, uh, right away, and he does look wild in the eyes. His eyes are wild. And we have a Petrovsky, and um, Petrovsky's talking and doing all the judge stuff, and he goes, are you God? And she says, no, just an overworked judge. And I love her casualness. We got to get Petrovsky on the pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, keep putting Pet- this off. We got to get Petrovsky. Hashtag Petrovsky on the pod. We're doing it. And she goes, you know, and I ask the questions here, not you. 
And he goes, you can't judge me if you're not God. And he goes, wild. He knocks his lawyer to the ground. And this is a guy from Manifest. And he's in future episodes as like the FBI child molestation expert. So he is um, Mm. a working actor. I do like him. And he has bandages throughout this whole episode that make me burst into laughter, which is so great because it's such a, you know, intense episode. And I love just having this guy with oversized bandages for the rest of the, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the show. Just an adult with a bandage on a face is humiliating. Like I would never, <laughs> I don't want that. I'd rather have an open wound on my face than a big ass bandage. Maybe not. Who am I? Who am I? What am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if it was a Gucci bandaid. Okay. So he goes wild. So he knocks down, um, like the lawyer, all these bailiffs, all these guys are holding him back and he just keeps screaming, you can't judge me, you can't judge me. He's screaming, they're holding. Cabot helps the other lawyer. Benson's holding back the wife. She's crying. He's sick, he's sick, he can't help it. I mean, this is I, this so much. So he's obviously being carried away in a great performance. And I think this guy's famous, but I did not look him up. But he does look attractive and like he's been in other stuff. The guy who plays the, the guy who plays the, um, the killer, yeah, Daniel, yeah, he he actually played like a big character on the Waltons. So he's like a ch- lifelong child actor. Yeah, this guy's name is Richard Thomas. Oh, I know him because he's a big part on The Americans. Do you remember him from The Americans? Oh my God! Finally, yeah. he's the head of the FBI. Yeah. Well, he's the head of yeah. He's the head the of terrorism. The, yeah, the CIA. Yeah. So now, after all this kerfuffle, we're on the court steps. And the wife runs after Cabot and she's like, can I talk to you? She's like, please don't kill him. Please don't kill him. Please don't kill him. And Cabot and the, you know, usually these, the lawyers annoy me a little bit. No, she goes, he's murdered four people. So that's what's going to happen. And the wife brings up a good point. You know, Karen and I are not for the death penalty, but she goes, but it's not going to bring anyone back. Like, and Cabot goes, I speak for the victims and the law. And that's that. And she says he doesn't know what he's doing. It's just like a very beautiful scene. And it shows the complexity of the world today Mm -hmm. and always. And just there's, you know, because of course she's begging. She goes, my children, like you can't kill their father. But it's also like he just murdered four people. So your kids are going to grow up with a dead dad or a murder dad. I don't know. But it's not good for they're going to need therapy no matter what. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I love Cabot and, um, the defense attorney is walking and he has a bloody bandage on his head and he's with Cabot and they're at Bellevue and he's like, listen, my dude belongs in a psych ward and you know that. And she goes, that's for a jury to decide, not us. And manifest bandage boy goes, but he's not competent. Um, and she goes, yeah, but he's violent. So I don't, what are we, I don't care. He's violent and he deserves to be punished. And there's just an argument, spontaneous, no impulse control. And she goes, I don't buy that. He it was a sex worker. He took her to the alley. He got rid of evidence and he plans shit. So, like, you can't say he didn't know what he was doing when he's ducking from police. Like, it's not going to happen. George Huang is here and he says, the you know, he's with the killer and the killer's in a hospital gown laying, his head hurts, there's chats, there's no memory. He has no memory of what happened in court. He didn't even know he was in court. He goes, I was in court like such it was such a good uh, moment. So he doesn't know anything what he did. The murders, nothing except I mean, he knows that God told him to murder Um, the unclean must be cleansed or I will serve my wrath upon you. So he had to do it. Um, He starts crying with his head in his hands. He's just really losing it. Um, And it pulls away as Cabot and the defense are watching. And Cabot puts up her like hand to her forehead like, oh, what am I going to do? Like a real 
thinking, you know, that emoji with the hand on the head. (laughs) George and Alex meet up in the court steps. She says the DA office just signed an order for the death penalty. George says he can't stand trial and is not competent. Cabot says he knows what he did was wrong, and George is like, sure, but he does not fit any type of profile of a killer at all. George says it's not schizophrenia or psychosis that happens, and like that happens to young adults and teens. What else is going on? There's just so much shit. Like it could be organic dementia, a disease attacking the brain, a brain tumor, Alzheimer's. Like we have to figure it out. And she goes, the public wants justice. George says, let's just do a hardcore thing, like MRIs, all the jazz, like, let's just figure this out. So Benson goes to talk to the wife and she goes, I'm not helping you kill my husband. And Benson has to say, like, you need to trust me. I'm here to help you. Um, And Benson is trying to help you and avoid trial. So, you know, my least favorite thing, this woman goes, do you have children, detective? No. (laughs) So I guess she can't understand anything. Um, Have you ever lost anyone close to you? So now she can relate. But anyway, so she has lost someone close to her. And um, earlier this year, her mother did die within the season of alcoholism. So she's like, so then you get it. You get it. She just keeps focusing on her daughters and herself. And you need to see outside of yourself. He killed four people. Like, I, 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 yeah. But whatever. So... Benson says, like, we have medical records if we just get these medical records. And she says, I will never understand. Daniel was the gentlest man I'd ever known. And then he started to change. And she begged him to see a doctor and he refused. And he, the priest refused and everyone refused. And one night, Daniel, she woke up and Daniel was standing in his daughter's room with a knife and said, life is so hopeless. And he wanted to spare them from the pain. Ay, ay, ay. So that's why to me, it's like, why are you chill? Like she kicked him out. But like in that moment, I would make more precautions than just like releasing him to the world. Yeah. If he's willing to kill your children, he'll probably be willing to do other things. Right. So Benson goes, please trust me. And thank God it does. So basically the medical history stops three years ago when the issues started. Um, But like. I don't get why the wife didn't do more to protect everyone. And I don't like blaming a woman for a man's bad actions, but she did know what was going on. And I'm very confused why she didn't do more to like protect people. I wonder if there was like not a way to commit him or something. I don't know. I don't know, but like you could be held responsible because I'm thinking of Streetwise where Mae Whitman's lie led to the murder and it's like her not reporting led to all these murders. And it's not Mm. her fault. I hate blaming women, but I'm disappointed. Like, if you saw him about to stab your daughters, I don't know. (laughs) Labs are back. Like, if you woke up and Jared was just in the doorway with a knife next to your children, like, I'm assuming you'd let someone know. I, you're damn right I would. (laughs) Just me? You would just text the group chat? Lisa (laughs) texting you. (laughs) You won't believe what just happened. But anyways, (laughs) let's go get breakfast burritos. So, um, labs are back. Drum roll. That's a clap. Hold on. <laughs> Advanced syphilis. Who saw that coming? Advan- well, I did. I've seen this a few times. But Oh, my God. <laughs> this episode, I've always in my mind thought, oh, my God, syphilis. So easily curable. But if you ignore it, you will turn into a fucking religious zealot serial killer. I've always, this episode has stuck with me so hard that untreated syphilis, like, truly rots your brain out. Well, yeah, because I like that there's more modern diseases to worry about. And we're like, just because of this, we're like terrified of syphilis on the street. I'm like, yeah. oh no, wear a condom, syphilis. Isn't uh, it sad that one one shot of penicillin, I mean, it's like crazy. 
Yeah, I don't know much about syphilis except that Ibsen play Ghosts, but um, that's just a brag. So, <laughs> brain is Swiss cheese, in quotes. It ate through the moral center of his brain. It's long gone, and we got to tell his wife. But the damage is done forever, and he will never recover. So it's already a death sentence. There's no reason to put this man to death. So Benton, so, <clears throat> so Benton's, so ben, if I start calling Benson Benton, I am gonna I'm gonna <laughs> slit my fucking throat from ear to ear. So Benson tells his wife it wasn't his fault, um, but he does have syphilis. She goes, "Oh my god, what does that mean? What about the daughters?" They say, "Well, we gotta text you all, but it's only contagious in the really early stages, and he probably picked it up long before you even met him." And how did nobody find out about this? What the hell? So basically, you know, he's been to doctors. He tried to figure out and he had an insurance physical light bulb moment for Benson. He wasn't approved for life insurance. And Benson asks why they're supposed to tell you why they didn't find out. They just assumed it was hypertension. So she something's going on. And this was seven years ago. Um, so she rushes to go see Daniel in his caged glass area in Bellevue. So Benson says, if they say no, they have to tell you why. And she goes, does it really matter now? And Benson goes, yeah, it matters. Please request those records. It's a sad, sad moment. And then uh, Paula goes to sit with her husband, Daniel, behind the gates. Um, and he says, I miss you. And then they hug. And he says, it hurts so much, and I'm sorry. And they really love each other and hug, and it's really sad. Benson slowly closes the door and scurries away. Cut to angry Benson, barging into Cragen's office with Stabler on, you know, behind her, walking behind her. Paula got an answer. They knew and didn't inform them. Communicable and sexual diseases must be told to uh, the health department, and you have to report it. And they have to tell the person. One shot of penicillin, like Kara said, could have cured him, and people wouldn't be dead. Benson says, I want their ass. So let's go on a fishing expedition. <laughs> and when Benson wants to take down a corporate entity, she does it. <laughs> she does it. In a few days, honestly. In a few days. Yeah. <laughs> the whole... <laughs> Um, so it's a jam-packed few days. It's only May 8th, and we're at the office of Malcolm Hunt, a CEO of Atlantic Life Insurance Company. It's a giant office, um, and he, what is this? And he's smarmy as fuck. He doesn't look like classic CEO to me, but the more he talks, he does. But he's an interesting casting choice and really interesting. I liked him. I really liked him. <laughs> He goes, I don't take orders from you. And he won't even put down his pen. He thinks it's like this, like when you're a CEO of an evil conglomerate like this, I'm sure you do think that you're impenetrable. Is that how you yeah. say it? Yeah, untouchable, yeah. Untouchable. So Benson goes, reckless endangerment. He goes, for what? And she goes, failing to notify the health department for communicable disease, which caused someone to murder. So that's what happens. He goes, how dare you? And then he stands up and thinks he's still in charge. And they're like, he's like, arresting me? Says who? And I love when they already have a warrant ready. They go, the judge, here's a warrant, bitch. On <laughs> whose authority? I mean, I love the way he's speaking to them. On whose authority? Ugh. He's like little Joffrey all grown up. <laughs> 
But they cut his ass and um, we're off and they Mirandize him and they're off. So the lawyer, of course, is saying this guy is the scapegoat and he is, but it is also his fault. So I don't know. Um, it's the law and you didn't follow the law. So you should have reported it. He says that they reject thousands a year and they're a business and they answer to stockholders. We can't contact every reject we turn down. That would mean we'd have to hire more staff, which means premiums would go up and fewer people can afford life insurance. And Cabot says a dollar fifty shot of penicillin could have cured him. Asshole. Such a simple, amazing point. But also just like, you know, this is season two. We're in season 23 now. And the way we're dealing with COVID as a nation is very reminiscent of this. It's the bottom line. It's stocks. It's who's working. It's how can we fuck up the workers and not give people what they need. And we're still living in this capitalist nightmare. Mm. (sighs) But Joe Rogan will save us all. Okay, so... (laughs) So, yeah, Cabot with, like, such an amazing point that we're still kind of struggling with as a nation today. Um, You should have told him. You should have told him. And the lawyer, again, keeps bringing up, like, we're not required to tell the person. They have to ask for it. And it's like, okay, yeah, the point still stands. You have to still, you know, contact the correct health department. If we audit records and find a pattern of similar cases that slip through the cracks with no effort on part of the company to rectify the situation, not only will we charge Mr. Hunt with reckless endangerment, we will also seize profits of company assets to the crime and see how stockholders like that. How fucking hot was that? That was, that's (laughs) like uh, the Joan Collins moment. That's, that's a monologue you can audition with, to be honest. And then she ends it with, and he can sit in prison for seven years to think about it. Um, I watched it seven times. I couldn't stop watching it. Like, um, <laughs> I really love that scene. And you can tell on Mr. Hunt's face, he knows when he's been had because he's such a big gun and he knows when he gets people. He, like, you could see in the eyes, suddenly it all changes. Like, oh, shit, not, I'm not the captain anymore. Um, so what do you want, Mrs. Cabot? What do you want, Miss Cabot? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? She answers very simply, I want your company to report all cases of communicable diseases. And when family of the murder victims sue, you will settle. And the lawyer says that's extortion and will cost the company millions. And she goes, okay, well, it's a lot cheaper than going bankrupt from publicity. Like court of public opinion, you're already guilty. You really want to take your chances in court? He's scared and obviously is going to agree. So um, we that's done. We've taken down a life insurance company. And now we're sentencing for Daniel. And the lawyer has another new giant beige bandage on his Um, and he is not competent. So, you know, remanded to custody of mental health and he'll be in a secure place uh, forever because his brain will never get better. And he's taken away. And then they show the mom of the murdered son and father. And she still has those wet eyes and wispy bangs. And Stabler's, of course, affected by that. They do believe in justice. They stare at each other. She walks away without saying a word. And the detectives leave and they're so tired. And it's a tough week at the office. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. Whew. I mean, an, an episode that I've seen truly at least a dozen times um, always sticks with me. Well, can't wait to see what's up. Yeah. Is yeah. it, you know, because in my, you know, they mentioned Jack the Ripper, but I know about it in theory, but maybe there's other things. So I'm That's not it. All right. We're going to go to our little commercials and then we'll be back and I'll tell you what we're doing.
All right. Welcome back. Let's get into this crime. So, yes, they did reference Jack the Ripper a few times, who was a serial killer in the late 1800s in like a very, you know, rundown area of London. And he would typically attack uh, sex workers and he would, and he did like sort of disembowel people. I don't think this is like necessarily what the episode is based on. And other people compare it to the Yorkshire Ripper. Again, a guy who was based off the Jack the Ripper, who in the seventies killed a lot of um, sex workers in England. But I think that this case is more based off of the serial killer, Herbert Mullen. And so I'm going to talk about him. Yes, I know my favorite murder has done this episode, but thank you for thinking about sending me the message. Um, I thought the religious motivation of this killer is what is what jibes with Herbert Mullen more. So he um, seemed like a closer link to me. So basically, Herbert Mullen brutally slaughtered 13 people, including children and a Catholic priest in Northern California in the early 70s. You'd think being such a man of God, he wouldn't stop at 13, the devil's number. I know. Interesting. I never even, you know, you've got the number. You've got the eye for the numbers. I didn't Numbers and cookie jars. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay, so let's start at the beginning of Mullen's life. He had a pretty regular upbringing. Like he brought up, he was brought up Catholic and was voted most likely to succeed in high school. You don't hear that a lot. You don't hear that a lot. Like everybody liked him in high school. He was a football player. Even though he was small, he was a good football player. He was well-liked. And um, so what happened was, in his later teens and early 20s, um, he began to suffer from schizophrenia and his mental issues were exacerbated by drug use like marijuana and LSD. And he did have legalized acid tattooed on his stomach. So, you know. And um, he was in and out of mental institutions from 1969 to 1972. So when he was like in his um, like late teens, early 20s. So when he turned 25 on April 18th, 1972. That is also the anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And Mullen was very obsessed with this earthquake situation. He believed that nature required human sacrifice in order to stave off earthquakes. So he was like, oh, the Vietnam War is killing enough people so that we're not having an earthquake right now. But that now that the war is kind of wrapping up, even though the war didn't end until 1975, like, I guess it seemed like it was kind of coming to a close. Well, he's also not in his right mind. Like, he doesn't know the right. date. So he's making this all up. So it's right. not like so he he's like, He's like, yeah, he's like, we're going to, I'm going to need to start the war. Yeah. You're like, well, the Vietnam War did take a few days, so I don't really know this theory I just wanted checks to give out. people the dates. <laughs> I just wanted to give people the context because um, I did look it up. I was like, well, when did the war end? Um, so he thought that he needed to be sacrificing people to stave off these earthquakes and um, that there was an earthquake on the horizon and he needed to offer people as a blood sacrifice to nature. He also later claimed that his father had encouraged him to kill through telepathy. So his father never physically told him, he just mind told him. So Mullen said, if I didn't kill, it would bring shame to the family by showing cowardice. It was kill or get out. That was what was going through his mind. Not a bad point, if I'm being honest, JK. <laughs> so, okay. I'm just going to take you quickly through like his first victim. So his first victim is 55-year-old Lawrence Whitey White, who was, <laughs> um, he killed in October of 1972. Mullen put up the hood of his car and acted like he needed, he needed help. And then when Whitey went to go help him with his car in exchange for a ride, he just smashed him over the head 
with a baseball bat. And he later claimed that Whitey looked like Jonah from the Bible and had sent him telepathic messages saying, quote, hey man, pick me up and throw me over the boat. Kill me so that others will be saved, end quote. So, you know, he, he's not he's not thinking rationally. Um, then his second victim is about a week and a half later. A f- so the, all of this guy's killings took place in like a few months, which was pretty quick. Like, a, you know, some serial killers span you know, years. His were all pretty quick and and condensed. It wasn't a 48-hour murder spree like in the show, but still pretty condensed, I think, for reality. Um, So a female hitchhiker is the next victim. Her name is Mary Margaret Guilfoyle. She's 24, and she's his second victim. Now, at this time, this is fascinating to me, Ed Kemper is making the rounds in the exact same area, okay? So many women are being told, be careful of hitchhiking, but all, but what I read was a lot of girls were like, nah, it's a lifestyle. Like, got to keep doing it. And I just thought that was like tragic, but also kind of like, sorry, you squares. Got to keep hitchhiking, even though so many girls are ending up decapitated from Ed Kemper. So when, when Mary uh, Guilfoyle saw Mullen, this like sort of cute, soft-spoken young guy in the car, she's like, this guy could never be a killer. She was very wrong. He picked her up and stabbed her through the chest while driving. Then he took her into the woods. He cut her abdomen open and took all of her organs out so he could like examine them. And he like draped them on a tree so he could get a better look at them. It's like really horrible. And then her skeleton wasn't found for a couple of months. Um, Mullen blamed his mother for this killing because she had given him a copy of the Michelangelo biography, The Agony and the Ecstasy, which I've never read. But I guess in it, they talk about how Michelangelo dissected human bodies so that he could like learn about how to better sculpt them or like what made up the human body. Dead bodies, obviously, Michelangelo. And Mullen thought um, that his mother gave him the book as a hint, quote unquote, to dissect someone. And he said, quote, I think she was trying to tell me what to do so that I could have this insight too, end quote. No, the hanging of the intestines has put me over the edge. I know. It's really, really horrible, but it's like he wanted to explore the human body. This was the only one of his victims he did that to. Um, So I guess he got what he needed out of it and then didn't do that anymore. And I'm like imagining her face, like just driving, chatting, and then looking down and just being stabbed. Like, I just can't imagine that moment. It's horrible. Yeah. Ugh. But I mean, so much, so much violence was happening towards women in this area of like Santa Cruz, like Northern California at this time. So, and then, um, so I think it's about a week later when he goes to a church to, um, he says, quote, to give me strength to never attempt to kill again. But he hears a priest in a confessional and ends up assaulting and stabbing the priest to death in the confessional booth. And this is so horrible. Obviously, I don't want any priest to be killed, but this priest was named Henri Tomei. And he was he had been a member of the French Underground, which was an organization that fought the Nazis in World War II. So this guy's like a war hero who comes to the United States and gets murdered by a person on a, you know, rampage. It's just like very tragic. A witness did see Mullen running away from the scene, but his description of like, oh, a slight man with brown hair, like it just didn't really help, which reminded me of this episode. It was like, he's very nondescript, this man. It's like, yeah, beard, wild eyes, like that's half of New York, you know? Like you couldn't, it was hard to track this guy down. But I do have to credit the actor from the Waltons because his crazy eyes looked amazing. Yeah. His wild eyes. crazy eyes. He did a really good job. 
We should do a who did it better, Uzo Dubo. Uzo or- Dubo. I was just going to say, <laughs> giving Uzo a Dubo for run guy. for her money. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously at the time, people thought that this was the work of a satanic cult because in the United States, we <laughs> love to blame everything on fucking Satan. But Mullen was raised a Catholic, as I mentioned before, and he kind of went back and forth between hating religion, having his own sort of religious philosophies, and then also getting into screaming fights with God like he was communicating with God. So his relationship with God was, you know, very um, complicated. But it reminds me, it uh, to me, that's the link with the SVU episode. Relationship so. status with God. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> oh, my God. Um... So after killing these first three victims, he kind of attempts to get out of Dodge. Like he tries to join the Coast Guard. Then he tries to join the Marines. He didn't pass the psychological exam for the Coast Guard, but then he somehow did for the Marines. And the Marines were gonna, they were ready to sign him, but he wouldn't sign this document that contained his arrest record. And so they dismissed him. And then he thought it was all like a huge conspiracy against him because, you know, he is suffering of paranoid schizophrenia. So a lot of that involves thinking that there's, you know, outside structures that are working against you and, and you know, to bring you down. So now it's January of 73. So it's, um, you know, it's been a couple months since his first killing. He remembers his high school friend named John Genera who had given him his first drugs, like his first, I guess, weed. Um, and most of us think of that person pretty fondly, I think. Like, I remember the first person who gave me weed, but Mullen was not happy. He thought that, this guy gave him drugs and it caused his whole brain to malfunction and totally fucked up his whole life. But it just so happens that uh, schizophrenia usually surfaces late teens, early 20s, usually. And that is that can be when people start to experiment more with drugs. So it's like, you know, it's it's sort of a coincidence. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think weed um, turned him into a killer. But so... He goes to find Jim Genera, and he ends up at the house of Kathy Francis, who lives there with her two sons, age nine and age four. And she tells Mullen, oh, Jim lives somewhere else, tells him where he lives, and then he thanks her and he leaves. So then he goes to Jim's house. He shoots Jim. Jim doesn't die immediately. He tries to get upstairs to, like, save his wife who's in the bath and telling her to, like, lock the door and everything. But he gets in, he shoots the wife, and then he stabs them, like, like the way you were saying, oh, it was like 42 stab wounds. Like, he stabs them. The article I read said, to the point of overkill. Like, I think they were long dead from the gunshot wounds, and he was just, like, stabbing away. So he was, you know, I don't know what he thought he was accomplishing with that, but... Um, this is a thing of nightmares. Yeah, Each this one is one of nightmare. these murders is a nightmare, but to put them all together is really Well, yeah, horrifying. and it's also it also explains a little bit why it was hard to catch him because it's like baseball bat, stabbing, gun, a, like a man of God, a hitchhiker. Like, nobody is, like, none of the victims are the same. None of the MOs are the same. He shoots Jim Genera and his wife, you know? Like, he's using all different weapons. He's going all over the place, so... I can see why it was like a little bit more difficult to nail down like who he was. So he goes back to the home of Kathy Francis. This is horrible. It's just going to get worse. Um, there's conflicting information on his motive here. One source I read said that Mullen thought Kathy had telepathically told him, I want you to kill me and my sons. We want to be a blood sacrifice. But other, obviously, later the prosecution argued that she was a witness and he was terrified of going to jail, so he was covering his crimes. So it's a little bit like what happened in the episode. Oh, you burn this woman. You try to hide evidence. Like, 
sure, you might be mentally incapable or incapacitated, but like you are covering up the like the your tracks, you know? So that implies like a, a knowledge of right and wrong, I guess. So when Kathy opens the door, he shoots her in the chest and the head, and then he kills her two sons while they're playing Chinese checkers in a bunk bed. It's like so horrific. I can't even like, ugh, it's so awful. But it's, you know, the episode has also a nine-year-old boy killed out of nowhere. Um, and then... So both Jim Genera and Kathy Francis's husband, Bob, who was not in the house at the time of the murders, were marijuana dealers. And so the police just chalked these up to drug-related crimes. Oh, yeah, because there's no pattern. Yeah, okay. and they did not connect it to the priest killing at all. They were just like, oh, these guys sell weed and like whatever, they, this was a drug-related thing. What connected it eventually, like DNA or what? I can tell you, I can tell you. So then a week or so later... Mullen discovered an illegal campsite when he was wandering around in the woods, okay? And it was four teen boys, like in their, like 18 or 19, all these guys. Um, their names were Brian Scott Card, David Oliker, Robert Spector, and Mark, oh God, Drybelbus, I think is his name. And they invited him into this like makeshift sort of like plastic tarp tent thing that they had made. And he didn't want to come in. He was, uh, very like anti-flower power, anti-hippies, stuff like that. I don't know why. Because that was well, huge in San Francisco at the time. Yeah. The but that was huge drugs. in San Francisco at that time. And he was just like, these hippies, blah, blah, blah. So he basically just started yelling at these boys for defacing government property in this forest and was angry um, apparently because he'd been hassled by a ranger for doing the same thing earlier. And he didn't think it was fair that these teenagers should get away with like camping illegally in the woods when he, you know. So the boys laughed at him, you know. They were like, whoa, dude, like, why are you so, you know, hopped up about this thing? And Mullen said to himself, quote, I decided to kill them and ask them telepathically if I could. And they all answered yes. They were all in a sitting position and it was all over in a few seconds. And he later said, quote unquote, they asked for it. So he hated renegade campers, hippies, flower children, anyone that he considered a counterculture deviant. So that brings him up to 12 victims. And then a few days after he kills these boys in the woods, it's February 13th, and Mullen had planned to bring some firewood to his parents' house, but he got a telepathic message from his father that said, don't deliver a stick of wood until you kill someone. So he drove by the house of some guy who was just outside working on his lawn, on his car. And he was a, pri a retired prize fighter named Fred Perez, who was 72 years old, just working in his driveway. And he just shot him once in the heart and killed him instantly. And he had no explanation for why he killed this man besides that, you know, he got this message from his dad saying, like, he, no reason why he picked this guy, I guess, besides an opportunity. Um, and the prosecution would later argue that Mullen was actually ready to stop killing and that this was his, like, come and get me crime. Like, he just did it broad daylight. A neighbor saw his plates and saw his car as he drove away from doing that. So he was easily arrested uh, very quickly after killing um, Perez. And he did not struggle or speak uh, when he was arrested. So when they brought him in to interrogate him, every question he answered with silence. And I was like, bring back my girls. Um, but... I'm just kidding. The silence part is real, but he did not say bring back my girls. And um, when they went to his like ramshackle apartment, he, they found a Bible. They found a paperback book um, called Einstein, The Life and Times. And they found newspaper articles about the recent murders. 
They also found the following note, and it said, Let it be known to the nations of Earth and the people that inhabit it. This document carries more power than any other written before. Such a tragedy as what has happened should not have happened. And because of this action which I take of my own free will, I am making it possible to occur again. For while I can be here, I must guide and protect my dynasty. I don't know. And then, so the cops were wondering, oh, is this the guy who's been killing all these female hitchhikers, which was really Ed Kemper? And um, they, like I said, they kept telling women to stop hitchhiking. And the ladies were all like, "Mm -mm, we're good. And so there was no evidence that tied Mullen to any of the hitchhiker bodies except for Guilfoyle, that hitchhiker. And he, she wasn't decapitated or dismembered the way that others were. She was just disemboweled. Like, Ed Kemper, you know, decapitated his victims or would keep, like, a finger or whatever. And, like, that's not what happened to Mary. It's just so. wild because of Ed Kemper. I only think of the actor who played him in Mindhunter. But he's Same. now in all these other shows. Like, he is in The Girl he's in the like Window. He's, like, in Shrill playing 80s <laughs> yeah. love interests. And I'm like, I hope you don't kill her. Like, But yeah. to me, like, when you're talking Ed Kemper, I only see his face. <laughs> it's truly who I see. And he does really—well, I watched a long video of Ed Kemper for this— not that long. I just, it's the longest I had watched Ed Kemper. Like I watched a 20 minute video of him talking and he's, he is like extremely articulate and just like set, has a lot of good insight. It's really nuts. Anyway, um, so eventually Mullen was charged with 10 counts of murder. He was not yet charged for the first three victims, White, Whitey, Father Tomei, and Guilfoyle. And then at his hearing on March 1st, Mullen carries in a two-volume legal book and tries to plead guilty. And the judge refuses to accept a guilty plea in a case of such magnitude, which I don't really know why. I'm like, why not? What, should we not burden the, 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 the system? with? But I think it's because um, they could tell that he was possibly not fit to, rep, like, to stand trial. So Mullen said, I won't accept that. You gave me a choice and I chose. And then his lawyer tries to intervene and Mullen says, I refuse counsel and insisted on representing himself. And his lawyer is James Jackson, who ends up being Ed Kemper's lawyer later. And he wow. has also defended other famous criminals. So um, so Mullen keeps trying to plead guilty and the judge is getting annoyed and the judge essentially doubted his competence to stand trial. So all the experts that examine Mullen determine that he is a person with paranoid schizophrenia. And... Um, he sat in his cell writing out all the reasons his just his killings were justified, which um, worked, but not in the way that he thought. Like, it definitely helped the judge decide that it, he was not competent. Like, he was trying to be like, no, no, here's why what I did was right. And then it really worked in another way because it helped the judge decide that. Um, and I, I learned about this thing that was kind of interesting while I was researching this, that all the writing he was doing, it's called hypergraphia. And it's something like it's an intense desire to write or draw. And it's something that you see in a lot of people suffering from schizophrenia, that it's just like writing, 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 getting your thoughts out, like chronicling details and stuff like that. And that's why you'll see a lot of like writing on walls, writing on your body, writing on like journals and journals and paper and stuff. So um that's, I think, something that was going on with him as well. So while Mullen was awaiting trial, guess who shows up at the same prison? Ed Kemper. Ed <laughs> Kemper, baby. I hope they're friends. Listen, it's wild. I would watch a show. I would watch a show just of this. Um, they put them in cells right next to each other. And from a lot of places I read, they were like oil and water. Like Kemper was 6'9". Mullen was this little guy. I, I read Kemper bothered him all the time, called him little Herbie, like all this stuff. 
But then when you lo- when you watch Ed Kemper talk about it, which I did, I, I watched a 15-minute segment basically where he talks about how he dealt with her with Herb Mullen. Um, it doesn't seem like Kemper didn't like him. It seemed like Kemper wanted to help him figure out a way to be in jail and stop driving everybody crazy. So this is just like, I thought this was like fascinating. Basically, okay, so Lisa, I think you actually may have mentioned this in the episode where you covered Ed Kemper, but- Yeah, but I'm sitting at the edge of my seat. Like, I know I (laughs) talked about this, but I'm sitting on the edge of my seat being like, what happened? Yeah, it's like an SVU episode that you know you've seen, but you're like, wait, this is what happened? Yeah. Um, So- Mullen had this habit of singing and bothering all the other inmates when they're trying to watch TV. And like, these guys don't get that much enjoyment and they get to watch like Saturday Night Special on Saturday nights or whatever. And they're trying to watch that. And he's singing and he's screaming about how TV rots your brain and all this other kind of shit. And the guys like all wanted to, you know, pound him. So what Kemper started doing was throwing water on him to shut him up. And then when he was good, he would give him peanuts. And he he said, Herbie liked peanuts. And that was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. And Kemper said, and that's called behavior modification treatment. So he, he essentially found out that the guy liked peanuts. They were cells next to each other. So he would like leave little bags of peanuts for him, treat him nicely, but then splash water on him when he was being a jerk. And he really got Mullen to stop acting that way. And then there'd be times where Kemper would be like, okay, Mullen's going to sing right now. And all the guys would be like, oh, and they'd be like, he'd be like, do you want him to do it now? Or do you want him to do it when you're watching your show? And the guys would be like, okay, fine. And then he would just sing for like, 45 seconds and then be like, never mind. Like, this isn't working for me. Like, I don't think he really wanted to sing. He just wanted to like disrupt. And if people are listening, it doesn't really work. So he figured out a way to really help Herbie Mullen, I think, exist in prison without getting like, you know, maybe killed. And Kemper would talk to Mullen about the way that they murdered people. And like Mullen would be like, yeah, I just shot them and they went down. And, and, Kemper would be like, no, you didn't. They writhed around a little bit. They did this. Sometimes you got to shoot them again because they don't die right away. And the guy was like, Mullen was like, how did you know all that? I never told you that. And he's like, because I'm a killer too. Like I, <laughs> like, I know, you know, like, and so he was like, Mullen was shocked that he knew exactly how he felt and like how killing people like went down. And her, and he goes, Herbie, I know what happened. Don't give me that bullshit about earthquakes and don't give me that crap about God was telling you this. I says, you couldn't even be talking to me now if God was talking to you because of the pressure I'm putting on you right now. These little shocking insights into what you did. God would start talking to you right now if you were that kind of ill because I grew up with people like that. So he's kind of calling Mullen out saying, I don't think you're that ill. I don't think you think God was talking to you, blah, blah, blah. But every single expert that interviewed Mullen said he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. So I do believe that he was possibly thought he was talking to God or at least that his dad and mom were telling him to do these horrible crimes. Um, As we know from Lisa's uh, episode on Kemper, he had serious mom issues. Mullen had more dad issues. And um, Mullen thought his dad was a serial killer. And he kept demanding that the cops take his dad's fingerprints and compare them against all these murders in California and the Pacific Northwest. So he just kept asking for that to happen. And obviously, no one ever did that. And I don't think there was any proof at all that his father was a criminal in any way. Um, The prosecution told the jury, quote, there's no question he's mentally ill, seriously mentally ill, but that doesn't mean he's legally insane, end quote. Basically, they thought 
He hid his crimes. He even ground down the serial numbers on the gun. So even though he has these mental issues, he still knew right from wrong when he was committing these crimes. And I, I guess that's the legal definition of um, legally insane versus not. They covered this well with Cabot in the episode, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Of, um, even if you're dealing with your paranoid schizophrenia, you're still acting in the reality of trying not to get caught. Right. So, um, it turns out that in this case, it did not happen like the episode. They basically side with Cabot and the jury finds Mullen sane and guilty on August 19th, 1973. Uh, they thought that the deaths of Jim Genera and Kathy Francis were premeditated, thereby making those uh, first degree murder and the rest were all considered impulse murders. And uh, they were... Uh, second-degree murder. I don't know, actually, if he was ever charged for the first three murders. M- maybe it just was no point since he had done all these other ones but um, and was going to jail forever. But So the jury found him guilty, but I thought this was so fascinating. The jury foreman did not like the way things went down in this, in this trial. So he wrote to Go- California Governor Ronald Reagan and said that he was responsible, as responsible as Mullen was for these deaths because his administration had been systematically shutting California's mental hospitals and had a plan to deactivate all of them in a few years. And so within a year of the Mullen trial, California legislators passed a bill to prohibit the closure of any other mental hospitals. So... No, and that's what happened in Chicago, I think, in the 70s, too. They just, like, released all these people into the neighborhoods with no resources or money. or And it's like, you can't do that. Yeah. And what people were—what I was reading a lot of was, like, he did not kill people because he had schizophrenia. He— he usually people with mental illness are actually more likely to be killed than to kill. I think that's a common misconception. But like any antisocial personality disorder, paranoid schizophrenia is usually diagnosed before violence occurs and then you can handle it. Like usually they can be observed in a mental facility and, you know, medication can work. But the problem is a lot of times they, you know, can if they're not being more closely monitored. But because he was discharged from these mental hospitals— he just was able to sort of have all this, you know, all these things were able to transpire. And it's, um, it does make me sad because it doesn't really, I mean, it's so much loss of life, but it also feels like this is a person that was not, didn't know what they were doing. You think but, if this person was medicated and monitored, he wouldn't be violent? I just don't see that. I think so. I think that if the voices, if the medication can calm the voices, then that's what's telling you to do what you're doing. Then I yeah. think so. But um, he is now 74 and he was denied parole last year. And at his parole hearings, he continues to blame his sister and his parents for making him commit these murders. Yeah, you can't let him out. All these years. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have remorse. I think that's what parole is looking for. And that's how people can fake their way out. But it's like they need you to learn a lesson or what's the point of jail? You can't like continue to say you don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This is um, horrible. We cover a lot of bad crimes, but this one is pretty heinous. Yeah. Pretty disgusting. Yeah. Really awful. And The intestines will live with me for a while. Yeah. I'm sorry. I had to do, I did have to tell no, everybody about to, that, but. You had to. You had to tell us. Yeah. Yeah. But I did think that. I put it in the show notes, this interview with Ed Kemper, where he talks about Herb Mullen a lot. And. It was just interesting because Ed Kemper, oh, it's like he was a horrible, horrible, horrible criminal, but he is like 
so articulate and he's in there talking about how Herb was never going to make it if I didn't help him. Like, and he kind of did help him. And it's like, why am I thinking that this murderer is like a good guy? Like, that's, I think, what is really, that's why they let like Ed Kemper run the library department at the jail and like do all these things that he's done because he is like an actual insightful person, even though a horrific, you know, violent criminal. Well, and not to this degree, like murder is bad, but I think, you know, sorry to bring up yellow jackets again, but (laughs) it's this idea of like, we're all layered. Like we're not all good. We're not all bad. It's choices, mistakes, moments in life. And like, not excusing any murder, but it is possible in the realm of humanity that Ed Kemper has other qualities and characteristics that are not evil and murderer. Mm -hmm. We just, as a society, can't look past murder. Yeah. Unless, you know, you're killing your abuser. But, uh, yeah. Well, that's that, everybody. I'm sure there'll be another opportunity for me to talk about the Yorkshire Ripper or you, but... (laughs) Well, and it's fucked up because, yeah, I like Ed Kemper too, but I'm also thinking about him in terms of this actor. But, yeah, it's fucked. (laughs) It's all fucked. He did a good job of getting Ed Kemper's voice in the, um, because when I watched this long interview, I was like, yeah, that is kind of how he talked in Mindhunter, so. These actors are incredible. Anyway, we have a, we have a, we have another amazing interview, so don't move your little booties. I've been talking to Rosie about her booty too much. Okay, today's guest was such a delight to talk to. We can't believe how many of our favorite shows she's been on. Sex and the City, Dexter. Right now, she's starring on The Equalizer with Queen Latifah. And you can catch her in a new comedy movie that's streaming called The Fabulous Filipino Brothers. You know her as a recurring CSU tech, but in today's episode, she was the very affected Rebecca Chang. Guys, enjoy our conversation with Lisa Lapira. So you're in New York right now? I'm in New York right now. Yeah, I was just going to ask, is that where you're on the Equalizer right now? Is that where that shoots? Yes. Amazing. Well, we have we have a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what is Queen Latifah like? We're dying to know. Everything you would imagine, like the good version of, of your imagination and then like times 10. Oh, wow. Great. So she's like a Mariska Hargitay <laughs> of the Equalizer. Yes, 100%. <laughs> she, she is. She's a Mariska of the Equalizer. A, uh, I love A uh, hip hop icon, uh, Mariska. Yes. Yeah. I mean, looking at your IMDb, you are just booked and blessed, killing it on so many iconic shows, Sex and the City, Dexter, Sopranos. When did you realize like, oh, damn, I'm a working actress and I'm making it? Oh, wow. That there was a real crystallized moment where I was like, can I quit my day job? Because I would I would be working. I was a series regular on a show and was still like, nope, I'm going to work the cash register at this thing until they kick me out. I'm going to sell so I was I was working at a baby clothes store. I, I'm going to sell the onesies until they fire me. And then I used to do that too. Really? Where? <laughs> yeah, in Connecticut, where I grew up. Wasn't it a trip? I mean, did you have kids at the time? No, I didn't. Because yeah, it was all of us. We were all a bunch of twenty year olds talking about like, <laughs> oh, this child's a three T. <laughs> Like we didn't know yeah. from a three T, <laughs> but I, I'd be like, the good thing about this is that they can really grow into it. Season <laughs> over season. Meanwhile, no, nothing. Like they literally run out of ever. They grow out of everything in ten minutes. A hundred percent. And I don't know where you worked, but like the shirts that I sold were like forty dollars for like a six month old. Yes. And I was like, you know, there's gonna be vomit on this. 
and <laughs> they're going to grow out of it in two days. Um, no, f- serious, same experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was on a show at the time and they, I was recurring. It was a show called Huff. It was Showtime's first, first foray into scripted. And, um, it was a really good show. Hank Azaria was the lead and Oliver Platt was, was the, like kind of the, I played his assistant and I was recurring the first season. And then they bumped me up to series regular the second season. And I still was like hanging on like to the cash register with my hands, like, wait, (laughs) wait. And I would like give them my shooting schedule. And then, um, and then it was stressing me out. And it, I, I think I just, I just took stock and I was like, can I do this? I guess I can. And I, I did it slowly. I cut back my hours. And then, and then finally, when I was like, oh, I can do this and I quit, um, that was when I was like, well, I guess by default, then I'm a working actor because this is how I'm paying for toilet paper and such. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. As a New Yorker, how was it when you, you know, got into the Law & Order Dick Wolf universe? Oh, man. I feel like this is going to warrant several conversations because <laughs> you guys, you guys, I did the pilot. We did not put that what? together. Wow. I was like in and out. I mean, this was when I was like, this, this is like when I was still not sure I could do this, wanted to, no, I always wanted to do this, but this was like this. I think it was my first job. Oh, it was my first job. So yeah. it was like very, very, the whole career was new to me. I didn't know anything. And there was this new show, a spinoff of law and order, but it was just going to do sex crimes. And I was like, okay. And they cast me and I was like the waitress, um, passing information, but it was a great cast. It was Patricia Richardson. I didn't work with, I worked with, I worked with the two biggies. I was passing the information they came to my restaurant, uh, Marishka and um, I'm going to call him Elliot. Uh, Chris, they came to the they came to the restaurant and I gave them the pertinent information like you do. And yeah, and it was the pilot. It was the first day. And it was and looking back on it, they were having um, pilot. It was like pilot energy. Like, is this going to go? Is this not going to go? They were working stuff out. Both very nice. And when I, you know, came back several years later, um, literally, I think it was seven years later. I got to tell them, and I was recurring as like the tech. I got to tell them, "Hey, I, I don't know that you would remember it, but I was there the first day because I think it was the first day. I have to check wow. back, but I think it might have been the first day of the first thing. Which I don't know makes me royalty. I don't. Maybe you think I don't. Well, <laughs> that it's for sure. special too because you got to see them on this first day jitters, like you're talking about, and then come back in what se- like season seventeen when. It's this giant, like, I'm sure the attitudes and vibes were different. Uh, this is going to be right in line with your, uh, with, with the brand. Mariska is lovely throughout. The throughout of her being lovely and kind was always there. It was just more of a machine. Like, um, yeah, it was a more of a well-run machine. And, um, and her taking the, taking the reins. I mean, uh, Elliot, I'm just gonna always call. Sabler was still there. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of both of them, but um, but she very much was was the uh, yeah, yeah. Just there's a, there was a, a leadership, a natural leadership there, much like uh, Queen Latifah has. There's a natural leadership and a natural kindness that goes along with that. And I just think those are the people that are supposed to lead, as opposed yeah. to you know tyrannical nut house. <laughs> 
those are your only two options. (laughs) So you were like, you were on season one as this waitress. And then how, then you come on for season two for this episode that we're talking about today, Scourge. And did you, they, did they make you audition again? Or were they just like, we like her, let's bring her back for this. No, I auditioned. You auditioned. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then did you have to like cry and be like, my roommate is dead and do that I whole thing? I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure I did at the audition in order to get it. Well, you did a great job. Yeah. Like we were talking Thank about you. you, how like so many people, so many young people on the show, their roommate is dead and they're like, that sucks. Do you think she's going to like, can I take her purse? Like <laughs> you they are just the don't even only like, and person you were, like, in the really- history of this show that reacted appropriately <laughs> to the news given to you. <laughs> You weren't unpacking. You you weren't moving (laughs) bottles. You weren't rushing. You really were sad your roommate died. I watched you. I watched that scene like eight times. I'm like, we've never seen this again. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) I I remember the director because I came in with that, right? Uh, You know, you read the scene, you come in and I came with a, a level of it. And I do remember the director, Alex, saying, you know, more, I want, I want more, it's like more of the hysteria. And I remember at the time, cause again, I think this is still like, I felt like a little bit of a baby in it. Um, it was like a year after the, I did the waitress thing. So this was, uh, I know this was my third job. I did law and, I did the SVU. Then I did a law and order proper. And then this was my third job ever. And I remember being like, okay, I'll do it because you're the boss, but I don't agree. And then of course, on the van ride home, I thought she came home and her friend was chopped up into little, like, of course, Lisa, of course, you're hysterical. Alex is 100,000. It's not too much. And then when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that is, that is the appropriate response to coming home and your, your friend is in pieces, like literal pieces. You're not doing laundry. Well, we're big sex in the city heads. Um, would you give us some scoop? Yes. From the set? Okay, great. <laughs> um, this is going to go long. Let's go long, guys. I have so many stories. <laughs> of course. Because we're also obsessed with Dexter. So honestly, we can just listen to you for hours. Like, we're so excited with we'll what you like, can give us. Stop the recording and then we'll have so much tea. I just feel like, <laughs> oh gosh, Dexter, you're taking me back. So Sex and the City was, of course, lovely. And it was the, it helped that it was like the episode. I don't know if you guys remember. Well, if you're Sex and the City heads, you will. The whole like, yeah. he's not that into movement. Um, and so I was the girl that Miranda stopped on the street. Or she, she's like getting her lunch. And she had just been told this by Carrie's new boyfriend that he's not just into you. And then she sees like a bunch of 20-year-olds. And I'm I, and it was a lot of improv. Um, the line I was given was, you know, he's not calling me because he has to get his kitchen redone. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, totally. That's why he's not calling you back. And then we had to keep going. So I was like, yeah, you've got to take out the wires. you got to take out the food. you got to make... It's a whole process. It's like a three-day process. And then she comes in and she's like, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, he's just not that into you. And then she walks away and I call her a bitch. So it was... That's the way to be on Sex in the City. Such an iconic wow, New York moment. Yeah. Like eating lunch on the steps. Like I just... I like that. Yes. Yeah, with all the other, you know, people in suits eating their salads. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah. What do you get recognized from the most? Uh, For being other actors. No, that was a joke. Um, (laughs) 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 For being the uh, one Asian American person they know. No. um, (laughs) You know what? 
NCIS to the point where like I, I went, I visited a friend in, in Paris a long time ago and the woman checking me in um, was just saying, Lee! Ajahn Lee! But you've, you've played like so many cops, detectives, agents. What is it about you? You think that like, you know, I would look at you and think like, yeah, this lady went to the police academy and <laughs> is going to kick my ass. Like, but, you know, you carry that in these shows. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the queen shining through. Like, you know, she's packing. <laughs> she's got a pocket knife somewhere in her manicure set. Or um, I don't know. I do think it goes in phases like the the whatever decision makers industry, whatever you want to call it. They the powers that be kind of decide what you are in that moment. And I went through uh, especially when I first landed, I went through like the newbie phase. Like I was, I was the cop, the lawyer, the whatever, but I was new because I was so young. And, um, then after that, I got cast in one single camera comedy as like the girl next door with, but she had a young kid. And then I had like four other things where, okay, she's the, she's the girl next door with the, the young mom. And then I did crazy, stupid love. And I played Emma Stone's best friend. And we, um, it was very raunchy. We were, again, we got to improv about how hot Brian Gosling was, which was so difficult, guys. And um, <laughs> acting, acting, go. Acting. And, um, <laughs> and then I, so then I was like the, everybody's best friend for a while. So I think, I think it's like what you're seeing doing. And then if, if, a deci- if someone who's in the power to make a decision likes it, then they tend to bring you in for that again. But I remember... Look, I didn't know from PR. Again, no one in my family did this. This was just something that I like to do. And I was like, I guess I'll try it. So I don't know from any of this stuff, but an article appeared. Um, I want to say it was 2008 that was called Dear Hollywood, you need to give Lisa Lapira something else to do. And I couldn't tell if it was for me or against me. I think it was a nice thing. <laughs> you kind of read the line, but it was like, hey, listen, she's was the, fa- the newbie in Fast and Furious. She's the newbie in this. She's the newbie in Huff. Like, Give her something. I think it was nice towards me because it was like, she can do other things. That's cool. I love that someone wrote that about you. So, you know, like you said, you're doing TV, movies, comedy, drama, procedurals. I'm assuming you love it all. Do you prefer one over the other? Like, do you, or little parts of each do you prefer? It's cool you do it all. Thank you. I think now that I'm getting older, it has to do with the environment more than the genre. I think if the people are cool and the writing's cool, I basically want to do it because... Um, yeah, I, I really like yeah. where I am now. And I, I can imagine a scenario where I'm doing something. I don't know. I don't even know what I want, but I'll just throw it out there. I think what actors are supposed to want is like something maybe more edgy or something more this or something more that. Or, um, and I can picture that and I can like it. But then if I picture the people not being cool or warm or kind or lacking in integrity, then it's hell on earth. So yeah, final answer. It has to do with the quality of people around and you don't have to name names, but have you been on sets that are hell on earth? I think, yeah, I think everyone has worked with. And, and I, I have friends in the, um, in the real world. I have finance friends. I have fashion friends. And I think it's a, I truly think it's a, when it's important, i.e. when maybe there's a lot of money or prestige attached to it, people can get cray. Because they're like, they're, like the, mm. the, everything just becomes at a level 10. And your truer personality, I think it heightens what is already there. So if you were already a little bit of a bully, it's going to be worse. If you're already 
you know, kind or already kind of a natural leader, it's going to exacerbate what's already there. Yeah, I love the sirens. Um, it's very New York. Like I like that? the sounds of New York. I do. I think it fits the show. Um, but yeah, I loved Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 too. I just love, um, it was so fun going through everything you've done being like, oh, I've watched so much of this. Yeah, and Unbelievable was like an amazing show that is, I think, very like adjacent to the SVU universe, like in subject matter, you know? A hundred percent. And that it's the true, the true crime of it. Yeah. yeah. And I loved that. And it, like everybody in it was just so excellent. What was working with like Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver? Was that like a good experience? Like, um, Tony Collette is amazing, uh, as an actor and she wasn't one of those that would jump in and out. I mean, she wasn't one of those that would stay in the accent, which I think is easier. She would just shoot and then talk to her kid in, in her normal and her normal accent is so strong. It's not, not even a mix of that and American. And so the technicality of that alone was impressive. And then add to it that her and Merit, gosh, they just gave so much depth to what easily could have been a run of the mill procedural, whatever. Are there lessons from, you know, you mentioned Tony being able to go in and out of accents. Um, are there any lessons over your career you've seen or taken from set that you think about often? Well, look, I, work ethic is big, right? I was, but I was trained to have really bad work ethic. Like my, my teacher was like borderline. It wasn't abusive per se, but it was very like, if you're not giving a hundred percent, then go home. Like, why are you with, like, don't put my name on your resume. <laughs> she was like that. If you're going to put out that, what you just did with your half-ass homework, like take me off as a teacher. She was very tough. Um, she trained like Jim Gandolfini. She trained um, Kristen Davis. She trained a lot of really good actors. And so I came out with that. And then, and I think, honestly, I think that's the only reason why I worked. Cause I, I mean, it was, no one was hiring this when I was coming out. And, and I certainly don't lead with, sexuality like as an actress so no one was I wasn't selling it and no one was buying it so <laughs> the only thing I, I had was that work ethic and then when I got to work I would see the people that I admire have this like do the same thing and it just reinforced in me like yeah you have to you have to do it or or like you're just coasting and and what what are you what are you what good are you what are you doing the other thing though I got to work with Jude Law and um I said, this is the thing I want to know from you. This is the advice. And he's like, what? I said, how do you stay away from crafty? And I was dead serious. <laughs> I was dead serious. Because <laughs> like the first season of Huff, my clothes weren't fitting. And I was like, and I was so young and dumb. I was like, ugh, LA, because you don't walk. And it's like, you don't think it's the eight grilled cheeses you eat every day at lunch? <laughs> a wash down with a pizza? I'm like, no. Um, what did he say? And so he, he legit, I'll, I'll share with you. He legit gave me a good answer. He said, I go, and he did this. Uh, people can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but he, he was like, I just, I go into the future of like how I'll feel after. I just go there, I go there, and then I I feel it. And then I realize that I don't want to feel that way. And then that's how I stay wow. away. Wow. He time travels uh, mentally. That's interesting. Meant he emotionally time travels, gets upset. And then time travels back. Oh my gosh. No, because I do what Jude Law does, but then I punish myself. Like, I know I'm going to feel sick. And then I go, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. 
But <laughs> well, I'm going to try to Jude Law. self-awareness. I'm going to try to Jude Law it. This is so self-aware. I kind of respect it. You go there, you go, oh, I'm going to feel terrible. But you know what? I'm going to man up and feel I'm going to go there. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. So at least you're not like ignorant. Because yeah, I'll I'll talk about my own uh, problems with whatever on the podcast and then listeners will give advice and I have to tell them like, I will never actually do anything to better myself. So stop it. Like, <laughs> I'm just here to complain. And that's how I feel with food sometimes. I'm like, I know this is not going to make me feel good, but I'm doing it. <laughs> right. Okay, back to us. And it helps to call it out. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Oh, right. It's about it. So really you're quickly. are you gonna I bet we're do, are the same one. No, you then you go, you go. Okay. So your character is just CS forensic tech. There's no name to her, which annoys us. Did you give her a name? Yes. Oh shoot, but it was like 15 years ago. I can't remember, <laughs> but I did give her a name. I did give her a name. I always do. I did an episode of Blue Bloods like on a fly and it was the same thing. And I was like, you need to, you need to give it a name. I think at that point, my agent asked for it, which is such a weird thing to ask, but I don't want to, um, gosh, what is Jenny? I can't remember. Guys. That's okay. That's okay. So, because you did like the first two seasons and then you came back for like seasons eight and nine to play this like recurring tech who was fun to mm-hmm. work with. Like, give us the scoop ice munch. Like, I mean, <sighs> I didn't get them. I only got ice and munch for the for this for, episode that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um, I was always with uh, Mariska and Elliot. Did you notice his butt? I did not notice his butt. What was, What about? Well, you know, his butt has taken the internet by storm. I don't recently. know this. No, I, I knew. Oh wait, my I thought gosh. it was Captain oh. America's butt. I thought it was Chris, Chris, the other. Oh, no. No. Oh. So the new show came out with the organized crime and he's really into working out and he's 60 and he looks incredible. And then all these uh, gifts and memes started coming out from the show with his ass. And then he did a men's health spread and interview magazine where he's like, really tight clothing and splits, pulling cars, eating pizza, like, and everyone just had like a summer of wanting all about Malone's yeah. ass. Oh. There would also be photos of him like on set on SVU that people were finding old photos of him like doing like lunges with like butt cheeks like clenched. Wow. And it's just funny. Like, yeah, he had Like he's full... pulling someone out of the water or like dunking a criminal, but his legs are spread like a stripper <laughs> and his butt's just out. And people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> So there was just like a big thing last year of the ass. So, but yeah, we were trying to just put you on the spot and be like, "Are you a pervert? Were you noticing his ass? Like, this is actually has a cultural relevance in the zeitgeist okay, that we okay. wanted to bring I up." I missed it. I missed it. It had not made its debut back back then. <laughs> you seem like you're busy working and not yeah. reading blogs about Chris Maloney's ass all the time. So, congratulations right. to you. I feel like I, I don't know. I could do some work on it. You were really close to the butt, though. That's a shame. Several times. I mean, but I'm thinking, yeah. (laughs) Well, and you have a movie. Yeah, tell Um, us about the fabulous Filipino brothers. We, I watched the trailer. It looks amazing. Oh, good, good. It just came out. uh, What's today? The ninth. It came out yesterday. It came out the eighth. It's available on all streaming. It's very independent, bootstrapped, like creating opportunities where there is none. It's the uh, the Bosco brothers who are, they just have been doing it since before. They were doing it since they were 10 years old. And it's uh, four brothers and a sister. And so they just wrote this movie about their family, about their town in Pittsburgh, um, the other Pittsburgh, the West Coast Pittsburgh. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like a my big fat Greek wedding in that it's very family 
and like crazy family, but love and like their weird, whatever cultural isms, but that really translate into every culture, you know what I mean? But it's raunchy. So it's not, it's like a family comedy, but it's like, don't take your kids. There's like, there's a lot of, it's very like dude humor in, in the best way. There's a lot of um, raunchy sex stuff, but no nudity. I can't really explain, <laughs> but it's funny. Anyway, it's, it's funny. It's delightful. And um, you're like a love interest, right? I like the love interest. So again, an opportunity that, you know, because unless I produce it, um, I'm not usually given that, you know, and it's the same with them. They, these are four leading men. They've been doing it for 30 years, but they were never given leads. So they created, and the movie's cool because there's four brothers. And the idea was like, Holly, we've been working, we've been supporting ourselves, but we've never been leads. So we're going to give each one of us a lead. And so they're the lead of their own vignette. And then it ties up at the end. And by doing that, they accidentally created some Filipino American female leads. And got, I got to be the girl as opposed to like the girl's friend or the, or the neighbor that wants to kill the girl. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I got to be, I got to be the whatever, what they say, the hero in, in, in my own story. But aside from that, cause I can get really, like what diversity means and how it's good for everyone and everyone needs the seat at the table and it makes entertainment better. And it's like, it gets all heady when really it's just, it's a good movie. It's a good, funny movie. People will laugh their ass off, hopefully, um, or be deeply offended. And that's worth, that's worth the price hey, of at least rental. talking about it. Yeah. So <laughs> I hope, I hope people see it. It's on like, it's on all the streaming, Amazon and the Apple and all that. Well, I also love that you mentioned, and because my big fat Greek wedding, like I wasn't Greek, I'm not Greek, but we're Russian and we related. And so it's like the specific to the macro. So it's about these Filipino brothers. But of course, if you're an immigrant, or something, you're going to relate to. A hundred percent. Oh, I had the same experience you did. I was, I sat at that movie theater with my best friends, Colombian, my other best friends, Dominican. And we all three of us left that movie theater. Like that was about me. Except instead of a goat, like we do pigs on it, but something's on a spigot, like something's yeah. going to be on a spigot and you're going to eat the skin and it's going to be delicious. Um, and there's going to be, you know, crazy people giving you advice. So I don't know. I hope you guys, I hope you guys see it. I hope everybody sees it and just like supports them because it's really cute. Yeah, yeah we would no, love definitely. to. We'll shout this out the movie. might be a weird statement, but we did have the king of the Philippines on, Lou Diamond Phillips, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did something happen that I didn't know? Did democracy... Do- okay, got it. <laughs> the actual king of the Philippines came yeah. on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I need to get on CNN. We like changed governmental structures. Oh, shoot. Yeah, Lou Diamond Phillips, Yeah. Yeah, it just felt very important. Awesome. Yeah, we just um our, our <laughs> Filipino friend was like he's like he he's the one that coined him the king of the Philippines. We did not do that, but it was just <laughs> um thrilling to talk to him. But if you wanted to talk anything about, you know, you mentioned how early on people were not really casting like Asian actresses and there wasn't a lot of people and now 20 years later it does seem different if you wanted to touch on that, if we wanted to just end like whatever kind of you feel. Um, yeah, no, I always love talking about stuff. Um, cause we talked to BD Wong and something I, we talked about, oh, yeah. um, cause he was on this podcast list called Charistas that we both like and how he was talking about how he was on Madame Butterfly or some thing decades ago where it was an, an all Asian group, but he, it made him great, full and happy. But then he was also pissed that it had to be this specific big Asian thing to have a big group of Asians. Like 
So yeah. it was this double-edged sword where he was happy to be with everyone, but annoyed he can't just always experience that. He mentioned like being on set and being able to talk about these like specific mushrooms with Bo and Yang. And he had never been on a set and been able to like talk about these mushrooms. I forgot what they were called, but like it's like these little moments made him feel very special. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel like, I mean, I'm going to go a little bit bigger. There's a lot of women, a lot. It's parody. There's like 50% women now in the equalizer in leadership roles. And that's very much by design. And I feel a difference when I communicate an idea. And it's one of those things where I didn't realize that it had there had been extra barriers to trying to communicate my point until I had a female director and a female writer and a female producer. And I, I just said less. And I was just able to say less because there was a collective, like, oh, I get it. And I, that's how I relate to the that Bowen BD story. And I think, um, I think it's also a good thing that it can be this huge Asian American cast and have an American flavor to it, as opposed to what he was saying, where it's okay, it's all Asian, but it's very Asian from Asia, which has its value. It's just when it's too much one thing, I think that's when it's bad. Mm. When it's like, all right, you know, we'll have the gay person on the gay show and it's gay. I, I feel like, all right, <laughs> but now let's have, let's just diversify our per- portfolio. And I think the more narratives we can put out there, I think narratives are the um, the silver bullet to pigeonholing a particular group of people or race. I think, you know, I, I came up, but I never wanted to be, nor should anyone be like the Filipino American or Asian American voice. And that's it. Um, and that's very much what they were trying to do to Margaret Cho. That's very much what they do when there's like, oh, there's, there's one. And I, the only way other than saying it with your voice, the only way is to show them. And part of the reason why I love the, what the Bosco family did with the Filipino, fabulous Filipino brothers is four leading men. So yeah, they're all Filipino, but there's like the good one, the, you know what I mean? The, the, the fuck up, the, the, the ladies, man, the dark one, there's, it's like, you can't, there's not one way to be a, a Filipino leading man. You know, there's not one way to be uh, a Filipino uh, leading right. lady. There's, we have many flavors and we would never in a million years be like, there's one way to be a blonde American actor or actress. Like this is, it's like Reese Witherspoon or, you know, it's Helen Mirren and that's it. And you know what I mean? Or it's Amy Schumer and that's all you get. And I think that's what we, we do to underserved invisible cultures sometimes. So it's moving the needle because we are, Everything that I'm saying is happening. We're putting out narratives. People are going to see narratives, which is the important thing, because we can talk about doing things out of the goodness of our hearts all we want, but nothing really moves the decision makers, I guess, or or the people handling the purse strings like the dollar dollar bill. Like <laughs> once crazy occasions <laughs> or or uh Black Panther or, or Fast and Furious, even, which if you look at that cast, is all di- very diverse. diverse. Yeah. Um once you see like, oh, 08 billion, then that's the thing. Not like kindness or human sense or integrity. It's like, oh, $50 trillion. We should, <laughs> the people will go say this. <laughs> but I really do think it makes things funnier, like legit. Yeah, the kindness of our hearts. But I think when there's more diverse, you guys are writers, when there's more diverse points of view in the room, just more funnier shit happens. Yeah, yeah I always say the people that are so um, against it, like you guys are missing out. 
You know, they're missing out on so many amazing, talented people and cool performances and shows because of their ignorance, where it's like, you don't understand how much fun and smart and talented things you don't get to experience because you're scared of seeing something outside of yourself. Yeah, and the audience is missing out on that too. There's room for everybody. And I think part of the reticence is that like this idea that, oh, that diversity is going to push me out. When in fact, it's like, no, we can all build something even funnier to get, like we're all just going to get richer. Yeah, you could be the silly (laughs) white best friend in an Asian show, you know? Like that would be great. Yeah, let's you and me do a pilot where it's like all the best friends. Like there's no, you know what I mean? There's no main girl. There's no main girl. And we're always on the phone. Like a typical scene would be like, ugh. Marcy has a problem with a mannequin. I got to get over there and and help her see that he's the one. And you're like, I totally have to help my friend move. Um, You know what I mean? It was just us talking about our friends. Just talking about your best friends that we never see. Yeah, we don't have any lives. Oh, that's so good. Okay. All right. That was fun. Yeah, she's fun. I'm glad we both discovered that we worked in upscale children's clothing as young people because <laughs> I actually know other comedians that have done that. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's maybe a thing because the stores are dead and the folding is tiny. Yeah. <laughs> we love, well, I didn't even do comedy when I worked. Like I was so young, but like, you know, I loved. And then once you work in retail where you have to fold clothes, every time you go into another store, you fold clothes and people think you work there. Like every time I would go into other stores, I would like look at a sweater and then refold it. And people would be like, excuse me, do you work here? And I'd be like, leave me alone. You know, cause I don't want to talk to people. No, I'm, I never worked in retail. I should have just pretended I did. You ni- You didn't? Never. I was food service, reception, and childcare mostly. I mm. never did retail. I don't think I could. Yeah, it was my high school job and then a little bit and then in college and then a little bit after college and then that was it. But it I liked seems it. Like you have to be very pleasant and very neat. And I don't want that. Oh yeah, you do. You have to be really nice. I remember like I used, you know, I love Cheetos and um I, I like the hard, crunchy kind of Cheetos. And I would get them on my breaks, but I obviously couldn't get like Cheeto dust all over my fucking hands and then go fold like beautiful white layette clothing. So like I would fucking eat Cheetos with a fork on my break. <laughs> like a weirdo. You love um, them so much. Yeah. I was 17. I was like, I'm obviously eating Cheetos. <laughs> what else did we learn? Yeah. What did oh, we learn? Syphilis. Let's... I mean, everything. I didn't know any oh of my this. God. No, <laughs> I didn't the know post-mortem, any of it. The postmortem of this. Of this this is actually is. the most postmortem that any of our episodes have been. I didn't know about syphilis, penicillin, life insurance has to tell you stuff. Yeah, you have not, to report STDs to the health department. Yeah. Yeah. That it's not that you can only pass syphilis in the beginning and then just live with it as it slowly eats your brain. Like, I didn't know anything. Yeah. Wait, what are the like physical symptoms of syphilis? Swiss cheese brain is what they say. No, that's if you have it for like, you know, decades like he did. But if you just get it from like a hookup, I just want to look it up really. Don't we have a vaccine for syphilis? It's not a vaccine. You just take an antibiotic. You just take penicillin and it goes away. Um, Oh, I guess there's like a rash, fever, swollen lymph nodes. Yeah. But it said that secondary syphilis can be mild and might not be noticed. Okay, so maybe that's what he had. Because I was like, why didn't he like, he didn't notice any weirdness when he first got it, but I guess he didn't. I Either way, it's terrifying to think that you could have this like latent STD that could just transform you from a loving father of two and husband to a 
full-on religious serial killer in the space of three years. Yeah, and also we learned that his wife is chill. Like, he just <laughs> held a knife in his the kids' room, and she was like, listen, you can't stay here, but you gotta go. But, you, <laughs> yeah. but no big deal. No biggie. Yeah, that's definitely a weird move, for sure. No, this one is fucked up, and uh, great acting. I like that he was in the Waltons. Yeah, yeah. Karen Allen. Oh, I forgot to mention Karen, because everyone's going to write to me, I'm sure about it. But Karen Allen was a huge part in the Indiana Jones movies. She's the love interest in like two Indiana Jones movies. And she's in the more recent ones. Oh, wow. Okay. Indiana Jones stands are listening. Huge Venn diagram. Oh, we should make more new Venn diagrams. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Oh, you know what I saw on the internet? I sent it to you and a couple of my other Virgos in my life. But it was a group of, it seemed like teens, but they got together and present PowerPoints to each other that have to do with them. And it looked like a really good time. Maybe if you still have it or we'll find it and post it. But I was like, I would do a PowerPoint birthday No, it looked so funny. Like just, they were just doing funny specific PowerPoints to their friend group. Like probably like guys, guys Sheila's dated that are lame or something. I I don't even, I'm making that up. But like, you know, it looked so, like I could imagine us doing that and having a blast. Because you know, we love to make a PowerPoint. Yeah. Speaking of, we're going on tour. (laughs) There will be games. There will be PowerPoints for sure. Yeah. 100%. We really can't uh, not do it. It's where my skills thrive. (laughs) If you're like, where does Lisa come alive? It's a PowerPoint. Well, not really. I do the Google PowerPoint. So it's a little tough, but. I make do. I make do. You do do a good job, though. You you are good good at power. Google slides, whatever it is. <laughs> I'm a Google slide master. <laughs> Have you still been wordling? Yes, it's been getting harder. Have you noticed? I know, but I don't mind it. I actually Annalise like the is challenge. nodding. I want everyone to know. But the New York Times is denying it, and it's like I'm sorry, um, cynic. Yeah, that was that broke my brain. Cynic. I got it, but like I got it at, at at move five and was like, I'm about to die. Like this word doesn't exist. Like I with my I was up at four in the morning with one of the kids and like had put him back to bed and for some reason decided to do the wordle. What a mistake! It was because then my brain. I did a word that didn't have the c in the other letters just to find out is it a y or an o? What is in? Yeah, this? yeah, yeah. Like, Sometimes I, you do like a sacrifice move just to yes. figure it out, but. Somebody messaged us and said, are you guys playing Wordle on hard mode? I didn't even think that was a thing. I thought the whole thing about Wordle was it was like, it's just one way. Yeah, it is. And people thought Aroma was hard, but it didn't, that one didn't stop me. But Cynic, I was like, oh, the New York Times. Have you done today's? Have you done today's? Yeah, I did it wasted last night. You can figure it out. Like today's wasn't like crazy, but it just didn't seem as easy as some of the ones were when I first started. Like I was getting twos and threes at the beginning. I'm like a five all the time now. Yeah, I mean, but I don't mind getting it at four or five. I, that never was it for me. Right. As long as I'm I just, get it, I'm happy. To me, that just is like indicative of the difficulty, I think, a little bit. Yeah. No, but. I'm looking at it. I did get it. And I was wasted. I, it's just, you're. I've been training for this for years. Yeah, you're a text twister. Like, this is your, this is where you shine. And not long. Like, if there was one extra letter, I could be lost. But a five-letter <laughs> word, I can handle that. <laughs> That's why Wordle is perfect. I mean, I'm literally, today was like my 38th game, 39th game. I can't believe I've been playing this like for over a month. I thought it would like fizzle out, but I'm Well, obsessed. no, someone tweeted like, um, are we going to finish this or no? And I was like, I'll play till I die. Yeah. I, one, <laughs> one a day, like it's, you know, 
know. I, it, you can't get that addicted. Also, I did get attacked on Twitter last week. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I guess it was a controversial tweet. I didn't think anything of it. The person who I was subtweeting and making fun of knew it was about them and did not care and like <laughs> laughed about it. But Johnny Pemberton, a former guest of ours, he, I just, <laughs> I got home last night and he just tweeted, uh, what did I miss? Just got here. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, like, I, and that was crazy. If you're interested, go to Lisa's Twitter and see the, and I thought it was pretty innocuous and I am a friend of yours with children, but. I was just wondering, and some mothers were very helpful. I was just wondering the psyche of posting excessively because I wrote constantly posting. Yeah. I love seeing children, but I, like the constant, I just was curious at what is in the brain. And a lot of moms and people that we know wrote, I just can't help it. I yeah. can't stop. Like, Yeah, they're like, my brain I is broken. This is interesting to me. I know it might not be interesting to anyone else, but this is like what I like and great. I don't even post, I don't post anything five times a day. So it's like, you know, <laughs> yes. for me, like it couldn't be my kids. Because then someone sent me a screenshot of someone that was really mad talking shit about me, which also don't send people. You never have to tell me if someone said something mean about me. I do not need to know. I don't, yeah. I don't get that. Like, you know, he said this. Okay, well, thanks for ruining my day. When you sent me the screenshots, I go, who is this conversation with? They sent you the screenshots? Like, what is going on? It's like people just want to see Lisa get riled up because sometimes it's fun. Like, but come on. No, I was, there was no way I was going to get into an argument with this person because it's like, it's not about you. I'm also not saying it, anything towards you, but I did mute his wife because she was so annoying. <laughs> yeah, well, she, yeah. We she did. posted so much that I had to mute her. So it's like. Yeah. So stupid. Twitter's dumb. But anyway. yeah, I just was curious and I love the moms that are just like, yeah, I never thought I would do this, but I just, I, I can't stop. And yeah. I, you know, that's, that is actually what I was looking for. And it gives you, I give, it gave me clarity that I didn't yeah. see before. Yeah. No. And I do want to pat my own self on the back. I saw texts talking shit about me. I have said nothing to this man. <laughs> I don't give a shit. Oh, I thought I, you, I thought you told me that you got on with him and worked it out. No. I have, I do. Oh, I, I misunderstood something you wrote me. Sorry. No. Truly don't wow. care. Um, he's also someone, last time I saw him in New York, I ran into him and he said like, oh, I heard, you know, I heard this person say this and this. And I went, and you should believe every word of it. <laughs> I said, I have nothing to say to you. I don't know. Wow. Was, yeah. This Listen. is like an enemy's crossover. <laughs> well, no, it's more of a therapy thing. Like, you know, you sit in therapy year after year thinking nothing is happening. And then one day you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. I guess I'm not responding, but I'm talking about it to thousands of people on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Is there actually growth or no? This is all so boring. You can cut all of this. I'm a nightmare today. I feel crazy. <laughs> I'm like, am I allowed to start what would sister back do? <laughs> yeah. Can you so I can go grab that Gatorade Zero I've been looking at? Yes. Uh <laughs> yes. Okay. I think this is a great transition from the lack of mental health on Twitter to today's What Would Sister Peg Do? Um, our weekly segment where we talk about uh, an organization. We give you guys a link, a book, something that can sort of flesh out what we talked about. And this week, we highlighted a crime where the perpetrator uh, was a person suffering with schizophrenia. So we thought we would direct you this week to the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, but specifically their Schizophrenia Research Project, um, which is called RAISE, R-A-I-S-E, 
recovery after an initial schizophrenia episode. Um, Their website offers a lot of tools to help you understand schizophrenia, outlines treatment options, strategies for those living with psychosis, and it focuses on a lot of young people experiencing this for the first time, which is, as we mentioned, a lot of times when it surfaces is in young people. So um, they have everything from behavioral health treatment services locator to videos about early detection and how it can save lives. So go to www.nimh.nih.gov, or we have a longer link in our show notes that will take you right there. Or as always in our What Would Sister Peg Do highlight on our Instagram stories. Um, thank you. Mental health is very important. Next week, we will be doing the episode Bedtime. There's some mental health issues in that one. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Season 11, episode 18. Watch along with us. Peacock. I mean, now now I want an OnlyFans. (laughs) Like, this is bullshit that you get to hear me say Peacock for free. Oh my God, we're we're releasing a ringtone. <laughs> also, stop telling us you like how these episodes longer and you love listening us to us talk. This is what you get. This you get an unhinged Lisa talking nonstop. Like, get away from me. Bedtime. Thank you. We're obsessed with you. Yes, we love you guys. Hopefully, we'll see you on tour and we'll see you next week. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixing engineer, Ryo Baum. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. And to Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everyone at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dun-dun!